0: The U.S. job market grew by 216,000 more jobs last month. That caps off a year's worth of solid gains for American workers. Numbers out today show businesses added 2.7 million jobs last year, despite the weight of rising interest rates. It's Friday, January 5th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the man who has led the National Rifle Association for more than 30 years is stepping down. Wayne LaPierre is accused of skimming funds for personal use. His trial was set to begin next week. A group of perinatal care program workers in Oakland are trying to lower the maternal mortality rates for black women. Black women in the U.S. are three times as likely to die from pregnancy as white women. Also ahead, how to eat mindfully in the new year it's 401 news headlines and wall street numbers along with a forecast
1: are coming up live from npr news in washington i'm lakshmi Singh. is democracy still this country's sacred cause that is the question president biden put before american voters who may, once again, end up deciding this November between him and former President Donald Trump should Trump secure the GOP presidential nomination. The timing of Biden's first campaign speech of the election year this afternoon is notable. It was made a day before the third anniversary of the pro-Trump insurrection at the U.S. Capitol.
2: The whole world watched in disbelief, and Trump did nothing. Members of his staff, members of his family, Republican leaders who were under attack at that very moment, pled with him, act, call off the mob. Imagine had he gone out and said, stop. And still, Trump did nothing. Was among the worst derelictions of duty by a president in American history.
1: Contrary to what multiple courts and elections officials say, Trump maintains that he was cheated out of re-election in 2020. And his supporters remain loyal despite multiple civil and criminal cases Trump faces over his role January 6th, his business dealings, his handling of classified documents, and sexual assault allegations. Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco says the Justice Department is doubling down on its plans to attack violent crime. So far, local and federal efforts appear to be paying off in a number of major cities. For example, the number of homicides in Baltimore and Detroit fell last year. We have more from NPR's Kerry Johnson. Violent crime has declined in many places since the height of the pandemic, and the Justice Department says it wants to maintain that momentum. The agency says enhanced background checks for young people buying guns have kept 527 weapons out of the hands of people who should not have them. The Marshall Service has arrested more than 6,000 violent fugitives over the last year and a half. But Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco says too many communities still suffer because of gun violence. She says the federal government will continue to work with state and local law enforcement to reduce those crimes. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. The U.N.'s Children's Fund says more than a million children in Gaza are in danger from intensifying conflict, malnutrition and disease. Here's NPR's Lauren Frayer.
3: UNICEF
4: says cases of diarrhea in children under five in Gaza jumped 50 percent in a week, and that 90 percent of infants and toddlers under the age of two there are now victims of what it calls severe food poverty. Israel initially blocked food and fuel deliveries to Gaza after Hamas kidnapped and killed Israelis on October
3: 7th. Since then, Israel has partially lifted its blockade, but aid agencies
1: say not nearly enough supplies are getting through. that's Lauren Frayer. It's NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The National Weather Service has a winter storm warning posted for Saturday afternoon through Sunday. Heavy snow is expected, but WBUR's meteorologist Daniel Noy says most of the snow will be falling west of Boston.
5: Snow totals couple inches in the city, though just west of Boston. We jumped to 2 to 4 and 4 to 6 inches long, 128 with 6 to 8 west of that, up to portions of the Merrimack Valley. Some higher totals
0: in the Worcester Hills. State Highway Commissioner Jonathan Gulliver says they have plenty of drivers, salt and sand, and 3,000 pieces of equipment on standby. He says this is the exact type of storm they'd like.
6: The timing is great. It's uh, coming in uh, on a Saturday night and rolling into Sunday, which means that we're not dealing with commuting traffic. Uh, that makes everything a lot easier for us, gives us a lot more room to, to do what we need to do. Although
0: if you're on the road, you're still urged to take precautions. Massachusetts is the latest state where residents are trying to get Donald Trump's name removed from the state's presidential primary ballot. State Republican Party Chair Amy Carnavali tells WBUR's Radio Boston the voters should decide who becomes the party's nominee.
7: Allowing uh, the ballot commission Uh, to make that decision for voters is really anti-democratic.
0: Lawyer and former state attorney general candidate, Shannon Liz Reardon, is leading the removal effort. She says there are laws that determine who is eligible to be candidate for
1: office. The United States Constitution, for good reason, disqualifies candidates who have engaged in insurrection. Massachusetts Secretary of State
0: Bill Galvin says he hopes the U.S. Supreme Court will make a decisive decision on whether Trump is eligible to be on the ballot. CVS plans to shut down its downtown crossing store in Boston next month. The company says the store at 55 Summer Street will close in early February. Prescriptions will be transferred to a nearby CVS pharmacy and employees will be able to work at other stores. Forecast should have clouds collecting tonight, about 25 for a low. Tomorrow, more clouds in the mid-30s. Snow starts early tomorrow, down around freezing. A wind-driven snow on Sunday. This is WBUR.
8: WBUR supporters include the Langloth Foundation, supporting justice, equity, and opportunity for all people to foster and sustain safe and healthy communities. Learn more at langloth.org.
7: on a Friday. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise
3: Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. In a moment we'll remember David Soule from the 1970s TV show Starsky and Hutch. But first, the longtime head of the National Rifle Association is stepping down. The NRA announced today that Wayne LaPierre is leaving his post as chief executive of the powerful gun rights group at the end of this month. The announcement about LaPierre's departure comes on the eve of his corruption trial in New York. Joining us here in studio with more is NPR's Joel Rose. Hi there. Hi, Juana. So Joel, just to get us started, remind us who Wayne LaPierre is and why this departure is such a big deal.
9: Yeah. LaPierre is really one of the chief architects of the modern gun rights movement. He's led the NRA since 1991, was part of the inner circle that moved the NRA to a far more hardline stance on gun regulation at a time when mass shootings and other gun violence were rising. LaPierre was once a kingmaker in American politics, hugely influential in Republican circles, but also among many rural Democrats. Um, he was also a, a major target for gun control activists, particularly after mass shootings in San, at the Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut, and at a high school in Parkland, Florida, Lapierre rejected attempts to change gun policy in the wake of those shootings and and used the specter of more gun controls to fundraise for the uh, NRA. Yeah,
3: I mean, he's been quite a fixture so tell us what exactly happened to bring about this dramatic fall.
9: Well, you have to go back to 2019, which is when claims of mismanagement and corruption began to surface, first from dissenters inside the NRA. LaPierre survived that, but there is a corruption lawsuit against him and the NRA that is set to go to trial on Monday in Manhattan. New York's Attorney General Letitia James launched an investigation and in 2020 filed this lawsuit. She accuses LaPierre and other current and former officials of misappropriating funds from the NRA, which is a a nonprofit. but behind the scenes, the suit alleges they were basically cheating donors, using contributions to pay for private luxuries, things like no-show jobs for friends and allies. LaPierre denies those allegations. The case has taken several years to get to jury selection. uh, And that started this week.
3: Right. So, Joel, did the NRA or LaPierre himself say why he's chosen to step down now?
9: In a statement announcing his resignation, the NRA says LaPierre cited his health as the reason for his decision. LaPierre is 74. He has led the NRA for more than 30 years since 1991. But of course, you know, it's hard to ignore the elephant in the room, which is this corruption trial looming over all of this. The NRA says it will continue to fight that lawsuit, and and Wayne LaPierre is still a defendant in his private capacity uh, as the case goes to trial.
3: Okay, big picture here, Joel. What does all of this mean for the future of the National Rifle Association?
9: You know, it's hard to say for sure. The NRA did win a legal victory earlier in this case. The New York Attorney General was seeking to dissolve the organization, and a New York judge shut that effort down. But this legal fight and and the scandal for lapierre personally clearly have been bad for the nra they have lost a ton of members contributions are way down from their highs Uh, they've had to shut down their media operations the organization even tried uh, unsuccessfully to file for bankruptcy this trial will really decide what the future shape of the nra could be if the organization loses it could be subject to significant oversight from the new york attorney general going forward which would really hobble what it could do as an organization.
7: And here is Joel Rose. Thank you, Joel. You're welcome. To the border now, where four crossings with Mexico reopened yesterday after the federal government closed them late last year. That was in response to as many as 10,000 people a day crossing the border. Arizona Public Media's Danielle Camara went to the port of entry at Lukeville, Arizona, which was closed for 30 days
10: the Lukeville Port is a direct route from Arizona to popular beaches at Rocky Point, and a vital connection between the small cross-border communities of Ajo, Arizona and Sonoita in Sonora. Sergio Hernández owns Tacos El Terasco restaurant in Ajo. He says he lost nearly half his revenue during the month-long closure. And another complication? All his employees live on the Mexico side of the border. So what was a 40-minute commute became close to six hours.
11: If it happens again, I don't know where we're going to do it. Maybe downsize or move my business somewhere else.
10: More than a million cars pass through the town of about 3,200 people every year, says Bo Johnson with the Ajo Chamber of Commerce. And the closure happened during what is usually the busiest time, when businesses make critical revenue to make it through the slow summer months.
6: We're glad to see that this only lasted a month, but one month was pretty devastating as far as revenue for our businesses and for visitation and tourism in our town.
10: Arizona has become the epicenter of migrant crossings in recent months, with Border Patrol apprehending upwards of 70,000 people in December. After the border closure, Democratic Governor Katie Hobbs called out the National Guard to assist local law enforcement with border security measures. Toward the end of December, the numbers of migrants slowed, which allowed the Department of Homeland Security to reopen the ports of entry, says DHS's Blas Nunez Nieto. That
12: reduction you know, may be the result of seasonal trends. We usually do see a decline in encounters this time of year. And it could also be the result of some uh, coordinated enforcement actions that we are taking with the government of Mexico over the last couple of weeks.
10: Nunez-Nieto says future closures are a possibility if migrant numbers increase again. For NPR News, I'm Danielle Camara in Lukeville, Arizona. Prescription drugs are generally cheaper in Canada than they are here in the U.S. And now
3: Florida is a step closer to being able to import them because of a shift in policy by the Food and Drug Administration. NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lupkin is here to talk with us about that. Hi, Sydney. Hi, Juana. So, Sydney, first, what exactly did the FDA do here?
13: So. The agency authorized Florida's proposal for a drug importation program that would allow the state to buy cheaper drugs from Canada. Under federal law, any state or tribe can submit one of these program proposals, and a few have. The law allows importation of certain prescription drugs in bulk, if doing so would save Americans money without adding safety risks. It excludes some very expensive drugs. Florida's proposal is the first to be okayed by the agency, but this is just a step. A lot more has to happen before before Floridians, mainly those on the state Medicaid, program for instance could benefit from Canada's lower drug prices. Okay I'm sensing there might be some hurdles here. What kind are we talking about? Oh my gosh all kinds of hurdles. So first the FDA wants Florida to specify which drugs it wants to import. Florida also has to verify that the drugs meet FDA's quality standards and relabel those drugs and that's a big undertaking. Here's Aaron Kesselheim, a professor at Harvard Medical School.
6: I think it's gonna be very challenging for this sort of arrangement to make products available widely to patients at lower prices.
13: Meanwhile, the drug industry is expected to put up a fight. The head of the trade group, Pharma, has already called the FDA authorization reckless and said it is considering all options for preventing this policy from, quote, harming patients. So the industry will likely sue and Canada has been reluctant to play ball on this because this program could lead to drug shortages and increased prices in Canada.
3: Right. I mean, Sydney, this is a popular idea here in the U.S. to import Mm. drugs from Canada and save money, but how could Florida actually do this without Canada being on board with it?
13: Right. Uh, It seems like it, it couldn't. So one thing to keep in mind is that Canada has a lot fewer people than the U.S. does, only around 40 million, which is about the same size as California. When Canada buys drugs and negotiates their prices, something the U.S. doesn't do across the board, it's buying for that smaller population. So, To have to supply Florida and other potential states with drugs through these importation programs, then that just doesn't work. And the industry can resist. Companies making branded drugs could try to limit their supply going into Canada so that it can't keep up with new demand from the U.S. um, And there won't be enough to send to Florida or whatever other state decides to do this.
3: Okay, so it does not sound to me like this is the wholesale solution to all of the drug price problems we're seeing here in
13: the U.S., huh? No, unfortunately, it's probably not. When I asked uh, Kesselheim from Harvard how soon before Floridians might benefit from this program, he said possibly never. Um, that's, that's, it's it's still a big step because the FDA is saying for the first time in years that, yes, drug importation like this can be done safely. Um, I also spoke to Tricia Newman, who directs the program on Medicare policy at KFF at KFF, a health, a health policy nonprofit, she said importing cheaper drugs from Canada isn't any kind of comprehensive solution to America's drug price problem. Instead, the drug price negotiation that's begun in Medicare through the Inflation Reduction Act is a much wet, better way to rein those high prices in. The administration is currently working on negotiations for its first 10 drugs. Uh, those prices will be announced in the fall and they could go into effect uh, in 2026.
3: NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lumpkin. Thank you, Sydney. You bet!
7: David Soule, star of the 1970s cop show Starsky and Hutch, has died at 80. No cause of death was given. Soule played Detective Kenneth Hutch Hutchinson, alongside co-star Paul Michael Glazer as David Starsky. Fans will remember the iconic duo patrolling the streets of the fictional Bay City, California, in that bright red striped Gran Torino.
14: Look, the engine had a 375 cubic You just want me to drive around in a stripe of tomato like you got? My car's a stripe of what?
3: While best known for playing Hutch, Soul got his start in entertainment as a singer.
14: I am the covered man.
3: Wearing all black and a ski mask, Soul's act as the covered man kick-started his career on the TV talk show circuit. As an actor, Soul also played roles in the 1960s comedy western series Here Come the Brides and the noir thriller film Magnum Force.
7: After the success of Starsky and Hutch, Soul returned to music. His song Don't Give Up On Us was a hit worldwide, topping charts here in the U.S. and the U.K.
14: Don't give up on us, baby Don't make the wrong seem right The future isn't just one night It's written in the moonlight and painted on the stars We can't change our Don't give up on us, baby. We're still worth one more try. Thanks
0: for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. More good news on the job front that's coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered.
8: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing gig speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business powering possibilities.
0: A slight upswing to end the first week of the trading for the year. The Dow gained less than a tenth of a percent today. S&P rose about two-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq eked out a one-tenth of a percent gain. The forecast is coming up.
8: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by semester off. Where college age students and high school grads can experience a unique mixture of friendship, deep personal growth, and fun. Improve confidence while gaining concrete academic and life skills and practicing healthy habits. Spring semester starts January 22nd. Semesteroff.com.
0: Should finally start looking like winter as of this weekend. Here's the latest forecast from WBR meteorologist Danielle Noyes.
5: A plowable snow on the way. Snow arrives 8 to 10 p.m. tomorrow. Rain snow line will work into the city of Boston, hug the coastline wobbling for a time tomorrow night. North and west of it, heaviest snow will fall. The height of the storm, midnight to 8 a.m. Sunday. Everything will taper off after that. I do expect to change back to snow in Boston towards the tail end Sunday afternoon before the back edge comes in. Snow totals a couple inches in the city, though just west of Boston. We jump to 2 to 4. And four to six inches long, 128, was six to eight west of that, up to portions of the Merrimack Valley, some higher totals in the Worcester Hills, an inch or two on the south shore, and a mainly rain event on the Cape, where the wind gusts to 45 miles per hour Sunday morning and afternoon. Wind chills for everybody, only in the teens Sunday.
0: 33 degrees now in Boston at 420. <music>
15: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more to bridge science and the humanities. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org.
7: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana
3: Summers. Do you ever eat way too fast and accidentally bite the inside of your mouth or just feel really bloated and uncomfortable? There are a lot of reasons we scarf down our food. Tight deadlines, short lunch breaks at work, rushing to get somewhere. If you're working on building better eating habits in the new year, you might want to try
16: eating mindfully. Mindful eating practice encourages us to make choices that are satisfying and nourishing to the body.
3: Lillian Chung is the Director of Mindfulness Research and Practice at Harvard University. She practices and researches mindful eating, which asks us to slow down and notice our food. NPR Life Kit host Marielle Seguera asked
17: her for tips we can use to eat at a healthy pace. Lillian, how fast are we supposed to eat a meal? Like, Is there a standard we should be following? Well, most
16: you'll find most nutritionists urging us to take 20 minutes for a meal okay. because it takes about that time for your body to get the signal to the brain that you are full. Mm. If you eat fast, your brain is not getting the signal that you are full until about 20 minutes, and it involves the nervous system as well as hormonal system.
17: Okay, so let's get into some of the, the really practical tips here. If you want to start to slow down when you eat or to eat at a healthy pace, um, what are some principles you can follow? First is
16: allocate time to eat and only eat. And make sure your cell phone is not with you or is face down. You're not going to be responding to any messages that come through. And then to make sure we engage our senses, be with the food and ask yourself, what's on my plate? How hungry am I today in this meal? Mm. And notice the taste, really. The recipe that I just cooked, is it too salty? Does it need something else that I can improve it next time? And engage your smell, all your senses, the texture, and whatever thought that arose as you eat, because there might be some
17: emotional aspects Mm -hmm. related to the food and be aware of it. Okay, let's say you make a meal that is something that your your grandmother used to make for you and you're eating it and you're tasting, "Oh my god, this tastes just like my grandma's stuffed cabbage." You know, like that's an emotional reaction that you can have to a meal too. That's positive, but if you pause rather than just shoveling it in, if you're pausing and saying like, "What do I feel when I bite into this?" stuffed cabbage you know who does it remind me of does that help
16: yeah it does help because it brings back loving wonderful memories and the dish that you use as an example is a great healthy dish we have to consider sort of the physiological and emotional psychological aspects of food but I really worry for America because the amount of ultra-processed, highly refined foods in the market is so huge, and it's easy to get addicted to it. Um, So we have to be very mindful when we yearn for those. And if you're really longing for potato chips, eat it, but make sure you just take a handful and put it in a nice dish and eat it mindfully to be able to taste the saltiness, this crispiness, and thank the universe for the right climate to be able to have that potato and the manpower that has been engaged in making it available, not only at the factory, okay, but also transportation to get the chips to the supermarket, etc. Mindful eating really allows us to become much more aware of what we have, how we get it,
17: and what it takes to be able to have that. The point you make about Taking the potato chips and putting them in a bowl, it gets at another tip for how to eat at a healthy pace, which is take smaller portions to the table, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly.
16: If you have a whole bag of chips with you and start eating, it's really challenging and difficult to stop after six or eight chips. Because, you know, we love the taste, we love the crispiness, and we just keep getting it from the back. And especially when you may be looking at your cell phone or watching a TV program, you're distracted and you feel good about the crispiness and the taste, and you just want more and more without consciously thinking about stopping.
17: Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, is there a space for saying affirmations even in your head, you know, like, I'm not in a rush, you know, or I, I enjoy my food or something really simple to keep yourself on track? Oh, yes. I think the key with a hurried life
16: when you start to eat is literally stop and take a few breaths in and out. Look at what you're eating and tell yourself, I'm going to enjoy this. And the food will nourish me, both my body and my mind. Mm -hmm.
17: And is there a particular way we should try to eat? Like any technique that you could tell us that will help us eat slower?
16: I think chewing is important. We don't chew enough. And we just swallow the food. So chewing our teeth is supposed to help us to break up the food so that it's easier for absorption. You know, it helps in many different ways. Digestion and appreciation of food, and it really helps to get you to know more about your own relationship with food. So look at your food know what you're eating take a bite and chew 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 (laughs) that was lillian
3: chung a mindful eating researcher speaking with life kit host Marielle sagara life kit wants to help you make and keep your new year's resolution check out life kit's resolution planner you can choose areas of life you'd like to focus on and the tool will guide you to some of life kit's best tips on the topic you can find it at npr.org new year
7: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: Coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR, amid the Israeli bombardment of Gaza, hundreds of thousands of women forced from their homes are in desperate need of washrooms and sanitary equipment. The private struggles of women in Gaza amid the war, coming up. Should have clouds collecting tonight, about 25 degrees for a low. Tomorrow, more clouds in the mid-30s. Snow starts early tomorrow night, down around freezing. Sunday, a wind-driven snow. Temperatures in the mid-30s. Most of the storm should move out by the second half of Sunday. Could have a couple of inches of snow on the ground collecting in Boston, but just west of the city, it's more like 2 to 4 inches, up to 6 inches along Route 128, 6 to 8 inches west of that. It's
18: 4.30. WBUR supporters include Arts Emerson, with the legendary Seven Fingers Troops, U.S. premiere of Dual Reality, February 7th through 18th at the Cutler Majestic, artsemerson.org. And the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new acoustic and electric guitars for 55 years. Every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com.
19: Roseanne Cash says mixing art and love can be tricky.
1: We can definitely bring personal stuff into the studio. He says, I don't want you to sing that note, and I think he doesn't love me.
19: (laughs) The Wheel, the album that brought her and her husband, slash producer John Leventhal, together has been re-released 30 years later. That conversation Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Start your weekend here tomorrow.
20: Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden is using his first campaign speech of the year to warn about the fate of American democracy. Biden laid out the stakes in this year's election, saying former President Trump's campaign is all about Trump, not the future. NPR's Windsor-Johnson reports the event in suburban Philadelphia today comes on the eve of the third anniversary of the January 6th insurrection.
21: Speaking near Valley Forge, President Biden said the attack on the Capitol was a vivid reminder of how democracy can be tested and whether it's still a sacred cause. Biden used his speech to take aim at Donald Trump, the likely Republican presidential nominee, calling him a threat to American democracy and directly blaming him for the January 6th insurrection. Three years later, Trump still falsely claims that the 2020 election was stolen and rigged against him.
20: That's NPR's Windsor Johnston. The leader of Hezbollah, the Iran-backed Lebanese militia, has told followers that while the conflict with Israel risks harming the country, the country would be harmed even more, he says, if Israel were not deterred from more attacks. Here's NPR's Jane Araf.
22: Nasrallah spoke for
0: more than an hour, explaining Hezbollah's strategy in fighting with Israel across the Israeli-Lebanese border since the war in Gaza began. He said while his main goal was to increase pressure on the Israeli military while it was fighting in Gaza, it was also a chance to regain disputed lands along the border. We have a historic opportunity to regain every inch of Lebanese territory, he said. He added he could be prepared to negotiate border issues after the war in Gaza ended. Jane Naraf, NPR News, Baalbek,
20: Lebanon. Stocks finished higher to end the week on Wall Street. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston celebrity chef Barbara Lynch is shutting down three of her signature restaurants and laying off 100 staffers. The venues that will close include Monton, Sportello, and Drink, all in Boston's Fort Point. Lynch will sell two restaurants in the South End. Here's WBUR's Barbara Moran.
23: Chief Operating Officer Lorraine Tomlinson-Hall said the closing restaurants struggled to make a steady profit and fell three months behind on their rent.
5: I think the whole industry has felt the squeeze coming out of the pandemic, where all of the sector had struggled to get back on the
23: even keel that they'd known before. Three Lynch restaurants will remain open. Number 9 Park and B&G Oysters in Boston, and The Rudder in Gloucester. News of the dramatic restructuring comes months after employees accused Lynch of creating a toxic workplace in her restaurants. Lynch has denied the claims. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran.
0: Governor Moore Healy is appointing a South Shore state representative to a newly created post. Duxbury Democrat Josh Cutler will become an undersecretary in the Executive Office of Labor and Workforce Development. He'll focus on apprenticeship and work-based learning. New England Patriots are preparing for their final game of the season, and speculation is that Sunday's matchup against the Jets in Foxborough could be head coach Bill Belichick's last game with the Pats. ESPN senior writer Howard Bryant tells WBR's Radio Boston that Belichick's potential development Departure would be historic.
20: It's Don Shula leaving the the Dolphins. It's it's Jerry Jones firing uh, Tom Landry. It's it's the end of an era. If this is what it these is, these
24: were huge
20: iconic this, coaches it, of previous exactly, teams. Exactly. The, these. This is the you're looking at the Mount Everest of
9: the game.
0: That's Howard Bryant speaking with Radio Boston host the Deering. Brian says he does not expect Belichick to be back with the Pats next season. The team is 4-12 and and has finished three of the past four seasons with a losing record. The forecast is next. WBUR
18: supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets
0: at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com. Wintry weather should move in late tomorrow afternoon or early evening and stick around until Sunday afternoon. Could be some rainy breaks scattered in there. By the time it all ends, Boston could have a couple of inches of wet snow immediately to the west. There could be up to four inches, up to six along 128, and up to eight inches toward the interior. 33 degrees in Boston at 435.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with Archie, based on the true story of Hollywood icon Cary Grant a new original drama starring Jason Isaacs. Archie, now streaming at BritBox.com slash NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of z Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at ZQuill.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org.
3: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
7: 226 migrants arrived in Denver just yesterday. and that is on top of the 4,500 migrants the city's already sheltering and the 36,000 that Denver has helped in recent months. All that is costing the city a lot. It says it has spent more than $36 million helping migrants. And Denver Mayor Mike Johnston, a Democrat, says his city is facing both a humanitarian and a fiscal crisis. I have him on the line now. Mayor Johnston, welcome.
12: Thank you so much for having me.
7: I I want you to paint us a picture of what's happening in your city. I read, this was in the New York Times, that you were at a migrant encampment on Wednesday. 300 people were scheduled to be transferred. You were trying to get them out of the cold. And while you were standing there, more buses rolled in with more migrants from the border?
12: Yeah, we've had, you know, in the last couple of months, particularly as the volumes have increased and as the folks that arrive no longer have work authorization, we've seen for the first time, migrants end up in encampments uh, outside on the street. And so we had an encampment of over 300 people. It's actually the largest encampment we've ever had in Denver. And just as we successfully moved those 300 people into housing, which was a great victory, We get at the same time uh, a new arrival of the next set of buses coming from texas with a a new set of uh, newcomers who need the same set of services so i think we are doing everything we can to be helpful and think we're succeeding but the volume does feel overwhelming
7: yeah i mean it's, it's freezing in denver right now it's january for people who are not in a shelter yet where do they go what's the plan
12: yeah. So when folks first arrive, we are bringing everyone into shelter. Most of our shelter are hotel rooms. So we have about 4,500 people tonight in shelter across the city. Right now, we literally have every single hotel room available in the city right. filled.
7: So how are you going to pay for this? I, I mentioned when I introduced you, Denver has spent more than $36 million already trying to take care of these people. Um, you are on track to spend $180 million in the coming year if it continues on this trajectory. How are you going to do this?
12: We don't think that's going to be sustainable for us. And that's the very challenge we're facing is at the same time, we um, don't think our city has the capacity to pick up a $180 million budget next year. That's almost 15% of our entire budget. And also, we're not willing to let women with three-month-old children end up on the streets in tents in 10-degree weather. And so uh, that is where we find ourselves between a rock and a hard place. Really, the three things we need from the federal government are work authorization. We need folks when they arrive to be able to work. Uh, Mm -hmm. We need more federal dollars to help support us in terms of providing these services. And we need an actual plan for coordinated entry. You know, America knows how to do this. We did it with asylum seekers from Ukraine. We have asylum seekers from Afghanistan. That's what we want Congress to deliver that could help our cities succeed.
7: I want to fill in a, a little bit of the background here. These buses of migrants that are arriving in Denver are coming from Texas. Republican Governor Greg Abbott of Texas has been coordinating the arrival of these buses. He says... He is providing relief to Texas's border communities. At a certain level, is his strategy working? He's got Democratic mayors like you uh, and the mayor of Chicago and the mayor of New York now putting pressure on the Biden administration to fix this.
12: Yeah, I understand his claim. I don't think Texas should need to carry the entire weight of these new asylum seekers, nor do I think any one or two or three American cities should do that. And that's why I've reached out to Governor Abbott and said we'd be happy to work together. We think there should be a coordinated entry system. Um, and But uh, we think that there is a better way to do it than just targeting two or three cities and sending all the migrants there. We understand why that's his instinct. We think we'd rather work collaboratively than work at odds to find a solution for the whole country.
7: And just to press you on this, as a Democrat... In a big election year, do you have any reservations about publicly putting pressure on President Biden over immigration?
12: I mean, we've been very collaborative with President Biden and the the White House. We talk to them regularly. I think they agree with our belief. They agree with our needs. So I think we're aligned on what we want to get done. They see the problem and they want to fix it, too.
7: Denver Mayor Mike Johnston, thank you so much for your time today.
12: You bet. Thanks for having me.
7: 2023
3: was a good year for workers jobs were plentiful wages were rising and the high cost of living began to level off and today we learned that employers capped off the year by adding 216,000 jobs in December. That is more than many forecasters were expecting. NPR's Scott Horsley reports.
25: A lot of the new hires last month were in education and healthcare industries that suffered a lot of burnout during the pandemic. Sarah Beck is a newly minted teacher in Ohio. She wrapped up her training just last month and applied for half a dozen jobs. She quickly had offers from four of them.
5: Graduated the second week of December, and then I actually started working three days after that.
25: Beck is now working with kindergartners and first graders in Ohio's Lexington School District. Public schools around the country added 19,000 jobs last month.
17: There is a lot of opportunity to get a job Teacher candidates, they get almost a choice in where they go because there is so many districts trying to hire.
25: Many local governments were slow to rehire workers coming out of the pandemic, but that's now turned around. Government employment has finally rebounded to where it was before the coronavirus struck. Healthcare is another growth industry, adding thirty-eight thousand jobs last month. Economist Neela Richardson, who's with the payroll processing company ADP, says nurses and doctors are almost always in demand in both good times and bad.
17: This is not like
26: manufacturing, an interest rate sensitive factor. Healthcare tends to be a little bit impervious to what what the state of the economy is because it's such an essential service.
25: December's job growth caps off a solid year for the labor market, with employers adding a total of 2.7 million jobs. That's a slowdown from the two previous years, when many businesses hurried to replace workers they let go in 2020. But White House economist Jared Bernstein says the U.S. added more jobs last year than in any of the four years leading up to the pandemic.
12: What we're seeing is a job market that is decelerating to a more steady, stable growth rate
25: consistent
12: with the ongoing recovery.
25: The unemployment rate held steady in December at a low 3.7%. It's been under 4% now for almost two full years, the longest streak of super low unemployment in more than half a century. Ordinarily, the job market suffers when the Federal Reserve raises interest rates the way it has to curb inflation. But so far, we have not seen a sharp jump in layoffs. Even industries like manufacturing and construction, that are particularly sensitive to rising borrowing costs, have continued to add jobs. Factories added 6,000 jobs last month, while construction companies added 17,000. Nancy McNamara completed an internship in the building trades this past fall. She quickly found work with a weatherization contractor in Rutland, Vermont. She's also had offers to work with a carpenter and a drywaller.
26: I like being tired at the end of the day and feeling like I accomplished something and with work like this.
27: That's exactly how I feel.
25: Thanks to the tight job market, wages have been climbing. Average wages in December were up 4.1 percent from a year ago. For most of the last year, wages have been climbing faster than prices, giving workers a real boost in their buying power. There are some weak spots in today's jobs report. Delivery companies cut 32,000 jobs last month, and temporary help companies, which are sometimes seen as a bellwether of future employment trends, shed 33,000 jobs. Overall, though, employers are still adding more than enough jobs for those who are looking for work, and the Fed still appears to be on course for that soft landing, with lower inflation and no big jump in unemployment. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington.
7: You're listening to All Things Considered. Black women in the U.S. are three times more likely to die from pregnancy-related causes than white women. That racial disparity is true even in California, which has a maternal mortality rate lower than the national average. Now a program in Oakland is trying to change those outcomes and possibly provide a model for other parts of the state. Daisy Nguyen from Member Station KQED reports.
28: In East Oakland, there's an old shopping mall converted into a community wellness center. And down one corridor, a room filled with music and laughter. Today, half a dozen black women in their third trimester are here for prenatal checkups. They take turns going behind a wall divider, where a midwife measures their blood pressure and their baby's heartbeat then they have two hours with Black midwives and doulas where they can ask questions to help them make informed decisions about their medical care. Jaisha Ren is a midwife and program director of Beloved Birth Black Centering. She says prenatal visits typically last 15 minutes, not long enough for patients to get all the information they need.
29: There's no time for them to be taking charge of their healthcare in that way and knowing what's going on with their bodies um, and making their decisions and having them respected.
28: The extra time is possible because they're in a group. Over the past three years, Beloved Birth has served more than 200 Black women in groups like this who qualify for Medi-Cal, the state's insurance program for low-income patients. A combination of public funds and private grants pay for things like childbirth education, tools to help them check their vital signs at home, and free produce and postpartum meals delivered to their door. Addressing this issue of health equity is, is really important. Kim Harley researches maternal health at UC Berkeley's School of Public Health. She says Black pregnant people are at a higher risk of hypertension, pre-eclampsia, and other life-threatening conditions. There are many sort of factors that may be driving this, but the primary factor behind all of that is racism in all of its forms. Harley says that the constant stress of experiencing racism can lead to things like hypertension, and discrimination can also translate to subpar maternity care. A recent CDC survey found that one in three women of color reported being mistreated while receiving that care. Common complaints included requests for help being ignored and unwanted treatment being forced on them. Jaisha Ren says, "Beloved Birth is tackling racial bias in healthcare by pairing Black patients with a healthcare team that looks like them."
29: The research is now showing so strongly a correlation between improved care experiences, as well as health outcomes and survival, even when it comes to things like um, infant mortality, uh, when folks are cared for by by people really of their community.
28: For program participant Tajay Harris, the group has given her a network of support,
5: and it's such a safe space that we all just like click and we just kick it together and there while we're learning.
28: She says she's learned a lot that has made her feel more confident about giving birth.
5: Like coping during labor, different things to ask the doctors, different things to make you feel safe.
28: Ren says it was possible to launch a program like this in Oakland because the city is home to many black midwives and doulas. That's not the norm in most places. Black people only represent about 7% of midwives. But she thinks other aspects of the program, like group care and wraparound social services, can be implemented anywhere. California is looking to introduce the program to other public health care systems. For NPR News, I'm Daisy Nguyen in Oakland. You're listening to
3: All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: Coming up on WBUR, President Biden gives a campaign speech near Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, a place that looms large in the history of American democracy. That story is coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered.
27: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lexus Broadway in Boston, presenting Girl from the North Country, playing in Boston this March. Written and directed by Connor McPherson, this new musical reimagines the songs of Bob Dylan, including Forever Young, Slow Train Coming, Like a Rolling Stone, and Make You Feel My Love. More at LexusBroadwayInBoston.com. Join us Monday night at City Space
0: for a conversation about cooking with and for kids. Jack Zhang is chef and stay-at-home dad whose viral videos of cooking for his two-year-old son have inspired a new cookbook. Tickets for the event on Monday night or at wbur.org slash events. Lots of clouds collecting overnight. Tonight, tomorrow, more clouds, temperatures in the mid-30s. Snow starts early tomorrow evening, should get down around freezing. Then for Sunday, a wind-driven snow, temperatures in the mid-30s. Most of the storm should be moving out by the second half of Sunday. About a couple of inches collecting around Boston, a lot more than that well west of the city.
8: WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, and proud sponsor of The Heart of New England the new IMAX film now showing at the Museum of Science, Boston
22: i filling in for Peter Sagal. And this week on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we ring in the new year in the traditional way, listening to interviews with our favorite guests, plus some you've never heard before. We've got brand new conversations with MSNBC's Rachel Maddow and journalist Bob Woodruff. Plus, we revisit our time with old friends Brad Paisley and Damian Lillard. Join us for the news quiz from NPR.
30: Saturdays and Sundays at 10 on 90.9
31: WBUR
3: this is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm
7: Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Death, hunger, disease. These are some of the visible consequences of Israel's war in Gaza. But for more than half a million women and girls there, there is a less visible kind of suffering, one that recurs every few weeks, war or not. NPR's Aya Batrawi has this report.
32: Women in Gaza are struggling in ways that are difficult to openly talk about in this traditional society. But basically, pads and toilet paper are in short supply. Ruba Hakila is a gender and child protection expert in Gaza.
17: If you search in all the uh, pharmacies, yeah, the, uh, pharmacies but, you know, you're not going to find anything at, at all. Like, and if found, it's five and six times
32: the price. She says not only are pads more expensive to buy, putting them out of reach for most of Gaza's impoverished and now unemployed households, but they're nowhere to be found a lot of the time. That's because of Israel's near-total siege of Gaza for the past three months, following a deadly rampage in Israel by Hamas militants on October 7th. Another challenge is finding a bathroom and running water.
17: You cannot clean quite
16: well in this regard, so it's messy, it's terrible, and nobody speaks about
32: it. Akilah says some women wake up early and line up at hospitals to shower and use the bathroom. This is especially hard, though, for pregnant women facing pressure on their bladder and women who've just given birth and are going through weeks of postpartum bleeding. The sound of an Israeli drone buzzes overhead as Akila explains how women are suffering in silence. She says they're cutting up towels, secondhand clothes, and even the corners of their tents to use as pads.
14: The only way to do it is just to do it with scissors. And yes, no water, no toilet paper, no privacy. No pads in
0: the market, and yes, that's terrible for women, and it is a big issue here.
32: But DIY pads aren't a workable solution for all women. Life in Gaza is a struggle for survival. People are spending their days searching for food and drinking water, and many have had to relocate more than once as Israel orders more areas it's bombing to evacuate. Heba Ostrov, a young woman in Gaza, sent this voice memo to NPR's producer, Abu Bakr Bashir.
33: I have a lot of friends that are taking pills to prevent their periods because there are no pads.
32: Around 2 million people, nearly all of Gaza, are now displaced and homeless. Most are living in overcrowded Yuan-run schools where sometimes 400 people share a single bathroom. Others are living in the open or in tents. Bissan Auda has been vividly documenting her life in Gaza throughout the war to her 3.7 million followers on Instagram. She posted a video talking about the stigma around not finding pads.
17: Women now are simply exposed to psychological and physical health risks because there's no products to use during their periods. Women are shy to tell you this, but they
24: don't have to be shy actually.
32: In another video. She showed what the inside of a makeshift bathroom in a tent encampment in Khan Yunus in Gaza looks like.
10: There is no water. There is nothing around them. There is no infrastructure. They're living just in a tent. Um, And they need bathroom. They're humans. They made this.
32: She pans to a garbage basket that doubles as a toilet.
10: They're having bath here.
32: She shows a plastic rectangular bucket on the ground.
10: Can you imagine? This is a bathroom.
32: Only a fraction of the aid Gaza needs is entering every day. The UN says everyone in Gaza is hungry and that half of Gaza is starving. The aid trucks that are coming in are mostly packed with food, filtered water, or medical aid, not with the items that women need to deal with their cycles. Women's menstrual struggles are a private taboo topic, even in wartime. Hiba Ostrov describes it as, quote, the issue in her
26: voice. Lines. We are
15: moving around a lot. We don't have the luxury of sitting around and relaxing, so the issue is really hard.
32: We literally drown. UNICEF told NPR they've distributed more than 41,000 hygiene kits that include pads in Gaza since the start of the war. But they say nearly 70 trucks with more of these kits and other essential items have been at border crossings for weeks waiting for Israeli checks to enter. And it's only a sliver of what's needed. Women in Gaza say menstruation has become a monthly humiliation and another layer of suffering. Aya Batrawi, NPR News.
3: Neptune and Uranus are the farthest planets from the sun. Pictures show Uranus as a pale green orb, while Neptune usually looks much bluer, almost like it's cobalt or sapphire. Astronomers recently did a new analysis that revealed these planets' true colors. And as NPR's Nell greenfield Boyce reports, what they came up with is a bit of a
34: surprise. The only spacecraft ever to visit Uranus and Neptune was Voyager 2. It flew by both ice giants in the 1980s, sending back historic snapshots. Patrick Irwin is an astronomer with the University of Oxford. He says the images captured by this spacecraft were taken with different color filters.
11: It's got a green filter, it's got a blue filter, it's got an orange filter.
34: Those separate images then had to be recombined.
11: And that's a surprisingly subtle process.
34: He says back then, choices were made when processing the images. The colors got tweaked to highlight Neptune's interesting features, like bands of clouds and a dark spot. The Voyager team was open about this, but Irwin says in the decades since then, the subtleties of how the images were made have been forgotten. These depictions of Neptune and Uranus have become entrenched.
11: People now just think, well, that's how a look.
34: He and some colleagues were recently trying to better understand the clouds on these two planets, using data from instruments on the Hubble Space Telescope, as well as the European Southern Observatory's Very Large Telescope. The scientists realized they could use this data to rebalance the images taken by Voyager 2.
11: And produce color images that you would actually see were you there with the spacecraft uh, looking at the planet.
34: What they found is that Uranus and Neptune actually look almost the same. They are both pale, bluish-green. Neptune might be slightly more blue, but the difference is nothing like what you'd see if you just Google for images of these two planets.
11: When you compare the true color representations against the original representations, you can see that both planets don't look very different, and all the amazing sort of atmospheric features in Neptune's atmosphere are much more indistinct and difficult to see.
34: A report on all this is published in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. Lee Fletcher was on the research team. He's with the University of Leicester. He'd love to see another spacecraft go out and get new close-up images of these mysterious ice giant planets. There are certain regions of Uranus and Neptune and all of their moons and their rings, which no eyes, no human eyes, no robotic eyes have ever been able to see before, even Voyager 2. A mission to orbit Uranus recently topped a wish list compiled by an expert panel that advises NASA on scientific priorities. The earliest a mission like that could launch is sometime in the 2030s. Nell Greenfield-Boyce, NPR News.
15: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. From Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering small ship experiences with a shore excursion included in every port, and programs designed for cultural enrichment, learn more at viking.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks
0: for joining us this afternoon. A nice dry evening and overnight ahead, about 25 degrees for a low. Tomorrow, mainly overcast in the mid-30s tops. Snow starts early tomorrow night. Should be down around freezing. Then for Sunday, a wind-driven snow. Temperatures in the mid-30s. Most of the storm should move out by the second half of Sunday. We could have a couple of inches of snow collecting in Boston. Just west of the city, it's more like 2 to 4 inches. Up to 6 inches along Route 128, then 6 to eight. Eight inches west of that could be wind chills on Sunday that may make it feel like the teens, so be careful if you'll be out on the roads. It's 4.59.
27: I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9
18: WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUR-Tisbury, and 89one WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: It's been three years since supporters of Donald Trump descended on the U.S. Capitol in a lethal riot. Today, his first campaign speech of the election year, President Biden warned against the consequences of compromising democracy. Our story is coming up on this Friday, the 5th of January. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins, also ahead. Climate change in California is leading to huge waves. And the huge waves are leading to coastal erosion. Our report is just ahead. The risks that unregulated intravenous treatments at med spas are posing to patients. And the suffragette mom for Mary Poppins, British actress Colinas Johns, has died at the age of 100. We'll remember the wit and charm she brought to the stage and screen. It's 5.01. News headlines are coming up.
35: live from npr news in washington i'm jack spear on the eve of the third anniversary of the january 6 insurrection where donald trump loyalists stormed the capitol seeking to overturn the election results president joe biden officially kicked off his 2024 election campaign Biden speaking near Valley Forge, Pennsylvania today, where George Washington and the Continental Army spent a bleak winter 250 years ago. The president repeatedly attacked his expected GOP rival for not having the best interests of the country at heart. choice is clear. Donald Trump's campaign
2: is about him, not America, not you. Donald Trump's campaign is obsessed with the past not the future.
35: Biden told the crowd democracy will be the hallmark of his reelection bid, saying democracy is on the ballot. Your freedom is on the ballot. Before his remarks, Biden, joined by First Lady Jill Biden, participated in a wreath laying at the Valley Forge National Arch. The longtime head of the National Rifle Association is stepping down. NPR's Joel Rose reports Wayne LaPierre is resigning on the eve of a corruption trial in New York.
9: The NRA announced that Wayne LaPierre is stepping down as chief executive of the powerful gun rights group at the end of the month. The announcement about LaPierre's departure comes on the eve of a civil trial in New York. The state's attorney general accuses him and other current and former NRA officials of misappropriating funds from the nonprofit to bankroll opulent lifestyles that included private jets, luxury vacations, and expensive dining. LaPierre has denied the allegations. In a statement announcing his resignation, the NRA says LaPierre cited his health as the reason for his decision. LaPierre has led the NRA since 1991. The gun rights group says it will continue to defend itself in the lawsuit. Joel
35: Rose, NPR News. Florida is one step closer to being able to import cheaper prescription drugs from Canada. NPR Sydney Lupkin has the story.
13: The Food and Drug Administration says it has authorized Florida's proposed program to import drugs. Under federal law, any state or tribe can submit one of these program proposals, and a few have. The law allows importation of certain prescription drugs in bulk if doing so would save Americans money without adding safety risks. The FDA also has to give its blessing. Florida's is the first to be okayed. The state has to get through a lot more hurdles, however. It has to specify which drugs it wants to import, verify that they meet FDA's standards, and relabel them. While the FDA authorization is a major policy change, experts also say it alone won't solve the United States' high drug price problem. Sydney Lepkin, NPR News.
35: The U.S. economy was still chugging along in the final month of last year, with employers continuing to add jobs and the unemployment rate holding steady. Labor Department reports that employers added 216,000 jobs in December. The unemployment rate, calculated by a different method, held steady at 3.7 percent. Stocks closed modestly higher at week's end. The Dow up 25 points. The Nasdaq rose 13 points. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The storm tomorrow night through Sunday is expected to drop some six to eight inches of snow west of Route 128, with more in parts of Worcester County and the Merrimack Valley. Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver says the crews are ready.
6: We have a little bit more than 3,000 pieces of equipment available to us. I expect that Uh, We're going to use pretty much all of them at one point or another during the storm, but uh, I I expect that at any given time you're going to probably have somewhere between 2,800 and 3,000 pieces of equipment out.
0: Gulliver also says the state has plenty of drivers, salt and sand. The city of Boston is not expected to get more than a couple of inches of snow. A debate is taking shape over whether Donald Trump's name will appear on the Massachusetts Republican primary ballot. Attorney Shannon Liss Reardon and the nonprofit group Free Speech for the People are asking state election officials to disqualify Trump under the 14th Amendment. But state GOP leaders argue that voters should get to have their say. Here's WBR's Rob Lane.
12: Ron Fine is legal director for Free Speech for the People. He argues the law is clear. Anyone who violates rules against insurrection cannot seek public office. And Fine says the Constitution limits who can run for president.
30: Barack Obama cannot be president again. He's already served two full terms. And even though perhaps many Democratic primary voters would be happy to see Barack Obama run for a third term, he is ineligible.
12: But Massachusetts GOP chair Amy Carnavale says the move to bar Trump is undemocratic. The
13: decision as to who our nominee should be should remain with the voters. The voters should have that choice.
12: It's unclear when the state ballot law commission will rule on the challenge. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane.
0: Boston restaurateur Barbara Lynch is closing three of her eight restaurants and selling two others. There were reports last year of abuse complaints from her employees, who said that Lynch ran a toxic workplace. Today's announcement from the Lynch Collective said that 100 jobs are being eliminated. Barbara Lynch is planning to keep her three remaining restaurants open. 32 degrees now in the Boston area, clouding up tonight. Gray skies tomorrow, then snowfall starts late tomorrow, packs a punch through tomorrow night into Sunday morning. The snowfall should end in the afternoon, but gusty winds and intermittent rain should make for a pretty messy mix. Boston area could get about 2 inches of snow just west of Boston, 2 to 4 inches, as much as 6 inches around Route 128, then up to 8 inches well west. Could be tough travel tomorrow night and again late Sunday morning and afternoon, especially in areas where there is a flash freeze. This is WBUR. It's 507.
27: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing stories to illuminate data and trends that shape the world today through its podcast, After the Fact. Learn more at pewtrusts.org slash afterthefact.
7: From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Glennis Johns has died at the age of 100.
3: She was best known as the mom in Mary Poppins, but she was so much more than that.
7: Bob Mondello has our appreciation a little later this hour. First, we turn to President Biden, who gave his first campaign speech of the year today. And it was not the kind of upbeat message you might expect to hear. Instead, he delivered a solemn warning about threats to democracy.
2: Today, we're here to answer the most important of questions. Is democracy still America's sacred cause?
7: Biden said this is the top question for the campaign ahead, given the threat to democracy of three years ago on January 6th, when supporters of his opponent stormed the Capitol. Well, to talk about this, we have NPR White House correspondent Deepa Shivaram on the line. Hey there. Hey, mary Louise. Before we get to what he said, let's recognize where he said it. Biden was speaking just outside Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. Explain the significance.
33: Yeah, I mean, this goes way back in American history during the Revolutionary War. This area where Biden made these remarks was where General George Washington and his troops spent the winter of 1777, at the time British troops occupied Philadelphia. And talking about George Washington is how Biden started his speech today, how Washington's mission fighting for America's independence was, in his words, a sacred cause. And Biden went on to talk about how democracy is still this country's sacred cause. So that's why he picked Valley Forge from a historical point of view. But I'll also note that the state, Pennsylvania, is really important for this election, right? One of the few swing states. How it turns out will help determine the outcome in November.
7: President Biden has made a, a point of speaking about democracy for more than a year now. What stood out to you, Deepa, about, about this speech?
33: Right. So this has been kind of a series of speeches Biden's been doing. Some of them have been campaign speeches like this one. Others have been in his more formal capacity as president. But this one was notable because he really laid out a contrast between preserving democracy and what Trump has done. He talked about Trump's actions on January 6th inciting violence and Trump's reelection campaign where he wants to be a dictator on day one. In the past, Biden's speeches have been about American values and about the idea of protecting what America stands for. but Now he's saying, look at
2: the other side, too. Donald Trump's campaign is about him, not America, not you. Donald Trump's campaign is obsessed with the past, not the future. He's willing to sacrifice our democracy, put himself in power.
33: But I will say, Mary Louise, that the line that probably got the most applause was Biden talking about how all of Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election failed and that the truth was that Biden won the election and he said Trump was a loser. And that's a big hit against Trump because it's using the former president's own words against him.
7: And now that we are officially in a presidential election year, I guess the big question is how much this messaging on democracy will resonate with American voters. What are you watching for there?
33: Yeah, you know, as of now, the outlook for Biden and this election still looks muddled, right? Voters have a lot of concerns right now. Uh, Anything from the economy where that stands, immigration, Biden's age and fitness for office, we've heard all of that. And Biden's approval ratings have still not really gotten any better. There's also a poll from the Washington Post out this week that shows a third of Americans believe that Biden's win in 2020 was illegitimate. A quarter of Americans believe the FBI instigated the insurrection. So there's also a mountain of misinformation that the Biden campaign has to battle here. But I will say that when it comes to this issue of protecting democracy, I've met voters on the campaign trail who have said that their concerns about democracy, a peaceful transfer of power is what made them vote blue in the midterms in 2022. And that was an election where Democrats did a lot better than expected. So this has been a successful roadmap for Biden once before, and it seems like when he's going to continue going down on Monday, for example, he's headed to Charleston, South Carolina. He's going to Mother Emanuel Church, where a white supremacist killed nine people in 2015. Thank you, Deepa. Thank
7: you. And Pierre White House correspondent Deepa Shivaram.
3: Giant waves are crashing along the California coast for the second time in two weeks, thanks to stormy weather and high sea levels due in part to human-caused climate change. Tides are lower this week, so the waves are smaller, but they're still forecast to get as high as 20 feet through the weekend. That is thrilling for surfers, but as member station KQED climate reporter Ezra David
30: Romero explains, all these waves are also eroding the state's beaches. When big waves happen, pro surfers drop everything and flock to them. On December 28th, pro surfer Bianca Valenti caught the biggest wave of her life at Mavericks Beach about an hour south of San Francisco. Forecasters had projected waves over 40 feet tall, but Valenti says this was bigger.
22: It was about
27: 60 feet tall and probably the same width.
30: She surfed part of the wave before falling, which was caught on video and posted on YouTube by the Maverick Surf Awards. That
14: was oh, just went down in a really bad
24: spot.
30: As wave after wave pushed her deeper underwater, she told herself two things.
5: I said I love this, I live
30: for this, and I just relaxed. I think I probably got sent fifty or sixty feet deep. A rescue crew eventually pulled her out of the water and jet skied her to safety without injury. Even though surfers love these waves, the National Weather Service warned people to stay out of the water due to the danger. One Southern California lifeguard service performed at 96 rescues over several days. Valenti again.
22: Tomorrow's not the day for somebody to go out for their first time.
30: Last week's giant waves resulted from a few things. High tides, a storm giving them extra speed from the Gulf of Alaska and higher seas due to climate change and the climate pattern El Nino. Waves are getting bigger. UC Santa Cruz oceanographer Gary Griggs has studied the California coastline for decades. He says that human-caused climate change will force seas to rise in the future, making waves even bigger. A Scripps Institution of Oceanography study from last summer found that California waves have grown on average a foot taller in the last 50 years as climate change has heated up the planet.
8: All the indications are that the water is going to continue to warm. It's going to drive stronger winds, probably higher intensity storms, greater wave power, bigger waves hitting more often.
30: All of this doesn't just create big waves for surfers. It can also erode beaches to stabilize cliffs and drown homes. Thomas Lundgard grew up watching surfers at Mavericks Beach. He helps run the Tommy Tsunami Surf School in Half Moon Bay. Lundgaard said waves have already eaten up parts of beaches like Surfer's Beach next to Highway
12: 1. Surfer's Beach has changed drastically where, you know, we used to teach a spot that was like further north. There's a staircase and we used to be on the the left side of the staircase, and then now that's just underwater.
30: At Mavericks Beach, USGS oceanographer Sean Vetusik inspects a pile of rocks that fell from the cliff onto the beach. He blames rain and waves. Many of the beaches are currently in a pretty eroded state. In a recent study, Vetusik found that depending on the sea level rise scenario, California might lose about a quarter to three quarters of its beaches. Erosion's a big deal if there's infrastructure nearby, he says. But not all erosion leads to catastrophic effects. Cliff erosion can replenish sand.
12: In some ways, these failures can be a good thing because there are a lot of sandy material that can eventually redistribute on the beach.
30: And while these waves are awe-inspiring, the Tusik says they're also a glimpse of our climate-changed future. For NPR News, I'm Ezra David Romero in Half Moon Bay, California.
7: British actress Glynnis Johns has died at the age of 100. Best known as the exuberant suffragist mom Mrs. Banks in Mary Poppins, she brought wit and charm to stage and film characters for more than six decades. Critic Bob Mondello offers an appreciation.
36: She arrived at the Banks household at the start of Mary Poppins positively bursting with populist enthusiasm. We had
16: the most glorious meeting chained herself to the wheel of the prime minister's carriage. You shouldn't be
36: there. This role made her a known quantity to audiences for the first time in a career that had started when she was 12. She'd performed opposite actors ranging from Laurence Olivier to Robert Mitchum to Jackie Gleason and made a bit of a splash opposite Danny Kaye in The Court Jester. She played the sultry spy who tries to make sure Kaye's medieval knight knows the pellet with the poison is in the vessel with the pestle. Or the pestle
12: with the vessel. The vessel with the what
36: about the palace from the chalice? Don't you
4: see the pellet with the poison's in the vessel with the pestle. The chalice from the palace has the brew.
12: It is true. So easy, I can say it. Well, then you find him.
36: Johns alternated between films and stage work chalice. throughout her career, and though not a trained singer, when she was cast as the lead in Broadway's A Little Night Music, she inspired Stephen Sondheim to write her a second act number that would be his only song to become a popular hit. She sang it sitting beside her character's long-lost love, the man she'd been chasing after for an act and a half, but had just realized she was unlikely ever to catch.
16: One who keeps tearing around, one who can't move. Where are the clouds? Send in the clouds.
36: Sometimes like to recount for audiences how he composed the song specifically for his leading lady. She had a lovely, sweet,
35: bell-like voice, which was breathy and short-winded. So it's written in short phrases. Is uh, rich? Pause. Pause. Take your breath. Are we a pair? Pause. Pause. Take your breath. You yeah, know, no, now she's got a nice sustained line. Da 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 da.
34: Me here at last
16: on the ground.
35: Breath ya da da pause, pause, breath. So, you know, it's, it's not hard
36: to sing. For which reason, plenty of others sang it after, though perhaps never better, said the composer, who also remembered how she nailed the song on the first take when they recorded the cast album, taking those short, breathy phrases he'd created and turning them into poetry. I'm Bob Mandela.
14: Don't you love a farce? My fault
16: I fear I thought that you'd want what I want. Sorry, my dear.
3: You are listening but to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. The U.S. Supreme Court has agreed to consider whether former President Donald Trump should be disqualified from the ballot in Colorado. This thrust the justices into the heart of the 2024 presidential campaign. That story is coming up in about 15 minutes. A slight upswing to end the first week of the trading year. The Dow gained less than a tenth of a percent. S&P rose about two tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq eked out a one tenth of a percent
27: gain. The forecast is next. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning coaching, and yoga. SemesterOff.com. And ArtsEmerson, the classic Moby Dick story is told anew with captivating life-size and whale-sized puppetry. January 23rd to 29th, ArtsEmerson.org. WPR's meteorologist Danielle Noyes is busy keeping track of the first storm
0: of the winter. Danielle, when's it going to show up and when does it become a real event? So Lisa,
5: tomorrow morning and afternoon is just fine. We're dry. The onset of the snow is 7 to 9 p.m. So that's the time frame of when it's going to move in. And I'd say the height of the storm is from midday through the morning hours on Sunday. Uh, There will be a rain snow line in play, and that's the trickiest part of this forecast. Where is it going to set up, right? You know, classic situations like this with water temperatures in the 40s, it should come into the city of Boston, and we'll see how far inland that rain snow line can go. So that will cut back on amounts right at the coastline. I do think where we do change over to rain, we'll flip back to snow on the tail end as some colder air comes in. And uh, that may cause a flash freeze by Sunday afternoon and evening Mm -hmm. in a few spots. So a few different facets of the storm to keep an eye on.
0: And in terms of total accumulation, uh, east to west?
5: So I think this is a scenario where somewhere like Logan Airport in the city of Boston has like a couple inches and then just west of town, it goes to two to four and then four to six along the 128 to 495 belt where it's going to ramp up six to eight and probably eight plus from places like the Worcester Hills. Um, you know, into southern New Hampshire, into the Merrimack Valley. South Shore It's probably an inch or two. Just inland of the South Shore it's more like two to four. And, And this is a mainly rain event for Cape Cod. So the jackpot totals will be north and west of Boston for this one.
0: And we'll talk to you again tomorrow for updates. Danielle, thanks.
15: Sounds good, Lisa. Thank
0: you. This is WBUR.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at Progressive.com, not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR.
7: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. At least 22 states now ban gender-affirming care for minors. West Virginia and Louisiana did so this month. That has some families with transgender kids packing up their homes and moving to states with friendlier
31: laws like Colorado. Matt Bloom with Colorado Public Radio reports. Hadley Charles is like a lot of 13-year-olds. She likes to hang out with friends and dabble in her hobbies, which include making colorful friendship bracelets. She's showing them off on her kitchen table in Denver.
33: This one says Taylor's version.
31: (laughs) She's felt inspired ever since moving from Oklahoma City last August. Hadley is also trans, and she says laws in her home state passed in the last couple of years made her want to stay in her room all day. They prevented her from joining girls' school sports teams, using the girls' bathroom, and stopped doctors from giving her certain medications to help with her gender transition.
33: I was, like, very anxious and I was feeling a lot of dysphoria in those moments. Like, it was just very hard to go to school.
31: Major medical groups, including the American Psychological Association, say gender dysphoria is a serious medical condition. And medications like hormone therapy and puberty blockers are safe and necessary for many trans kids. But Oklahoma's Republican-led legislature is one of almost two dozen that have passed restrictions on gender-affirming care for minors over the past two years. Supporters argue the laws protect kids. Hadley's mom, Liz, doesn't buy that. She supported her daughter's transition. And she says Oklahoma's laws made her daughter feel depressed
33: that's when things started to become really real for us was like
22: oh this isn't gonna get
31: better last august she made the difficult decision to quit her job and move she and hadley picked colorado because it's one of just 14 states that protect gender affirming care for minors advocates say other families with trans kids are doing the same
12: we're creating refugees within our own country
31: Brianna Titone is a Democratic state representative who helped pass Colorado's transgender care protections. She says the state doesn't track specific numbers of trans people moving in, but healthcare providers have seen wait times double in some cases because doctors can't keep up.
12: If we can't train them fast enough, the backlog is always going to be there. And then if more people are coming, it's just going to get worse.
31: Providers in other states are seeing longer wait times, too. Dr. Carl Streed, Jr. is a primary care physician based in Boston and head of the U.S. Professional Association for Transgender Health. My wait time has gone from a new patient appointment being like probably maybe four to six weeks out to up to eight to 12 weeks or even longer out. It's hard to know exactly how many people or providers are moving because it's happening too fast to track, Street says. We won't know those numbers for at least another two or three years to really understand what has happened just in the past um one or two uh, with regards to these bands families like Liz and Hadley Charles say the logistics of moving were a challenge but it's paid off Hadley smiles more now and she's found an affirming doctor
33: I was in a really bad mental state in OKC and as soon as I moved here it was kind of slow but I, like I like felt so much better mentally
31: Hadley's next goal to make a few more friends and continue the transition she couldn't make back in her hometown for NPR News, I'm Matt Bloom.
3: Believe it or not, we have reached the final week of the NFL regular season. The Baltimore Ravens and San Francisco 49ers are headed into the weekend with the best records and her top seeds going into the playoffs. Yet there is still a lot at stake this weekend for other teams. Let's get into all of it with Lindsey Jones, senior NFL editor at The Ringer. Welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So, Lindsay, I live in Baltimore, and it's impossible to walk down the street without hearing how great the Baltimore Ravens are, but they really were great, arguably the best team this year. Tell us a little bit about what makes the Ravens so
24: good right now. Well, it all starts with Lamar Jackson, their star quarterback, who is – almost certainly going to win his second league MVP award um, that won't be announced until February but he is by far the leading candidate right now especially because of what he and the Ravens were able to do late in the regular season and the thing that's been most exciting to watch about the Ravens this year is look we all know that Lamar Jackson is one of the best athletes in the NFL he is one of the most dynamic players when he gets the football in his hands but they made a change at offensive coordinator going into this season and really have finally been built like a very diverse offensive system that really highlights his skills as a passer and then also takes advantage of the running skills that we already knew he had and they've added a whole bunch of really good skill position players around him so they've been really fun to watch and they're going to be an awesome team who's hard to beat in the playoffs. I mean, the Ravens and the 49ers,
3: as we mentioned, they've locked things up. They know their fate, but this is a hugely consequential weekend for a lot of other teams. Give us some of your top picks for must-watch games over this last weekend.
24: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really interesting slate because I think there are five playoff slots that, have, uh, that are really up for grabs right now. There's a couple division titles that are still up for grabs. So I'll give you one game for each night. So on Saturday, we're going to have a game between the Colts and the Texans, who are two teams who really exceeded expectations this year. I don't think if you would have asked anybody back in August if you said that the Texans and the Colts would be playing for playoff spots come January, that just wasn't something that was really in the cards for either of these teams. But whoever wins that game on Saturday is going to be in the postseason. We'll have to wait until Sunday to know if they've won their division or if they'll be in as a wild card. C.J. Stroud, the quarterback for the Texans, probably is going to win Offensive Rookie of the Year. He's really just been a revelation. And then it's the Sunday night game. It is Mm -hmm. the Bills against the Dolphins. So much at stake the AFC East title. You know, There's a possibility that the Bills could win that game, be the AFC East champions, or they could lose that game, and then depending on some of the other results on Sunday, they could be out completely, which as well because they're a team that has better Super Bowl odds than a lot of teams in the field and there's also a chance that they miss the playoffs entirely.
3: Is there any team that is not going to be in the playoffs not moving on into the postseason that surprises you that you would have expected to see there this season?
24: Yeah, I mean I think if, if the Bills don't get in, that's going to be the you know the big one. And then I think over in the NFC, the Seahawks have been somewhat of a disappointment late in the season. They were a playoff team last year with really big expectations coming into the season. And there's definitely still a chance that they make it that they get one of the wild card spots, but they're going to need to win and then also get some help in their final game of the season.
3: Well, one team that we know won't have to be worrying about the officiating is the New England Patriots. They have really struggled this season, and there is no chance they're headed to the playoffs. And legendary head coach Bill Belichick has been under so much heat all season. Do you think this might be his last weekend there on the Patriots' sideline?
24: Yeah, I mean, it really has felt like it has been building to that. All season where, you know, there have been multiple moments this year where we've kind of had to ask ourselves, like, is this rock bottom for the Patriots? And then in many ways, it's gotten worse. As you said, they're not going to make the playoffs. They're in position to either pick second or third in the draft next year. And this is a franchise that has been absolutely trending in the wrong way. Bill Belichick will go down as the greatest coach of all time. The legacy that he built in New England, all of the Super Bowls that they won, none of that stuff can be undone Done. he deserves all of those accolades for sure but i think when a team has bottomed out the way that the patriots have this is the potentially the time that you hit that reset really you know robert Kraft has to ask himself what does he want the next 10 years of patriots football to look like and is this the right time to move on lindsey
3: jones senior nfl editor at the ringer Lindsay, thank
24: you thank you so much for having me
7: This is NPR News.
18: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Center for Professional Education Certificates in Real Estate Studies. Stay current and competitive in commercial real estate facilities management and real estate finance. Learn more at an information webinar Tuesday, January 9th at 2 p.m. Sign up at bu.edu professional.
22: I'm Nageen Farsad filling in for Peter Sagal. And this week on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we ring in the new year in the traditional way, listening to interviews with our favorite guests, plus some you've never heard before. We've got brand new conversations with MSNBC's Rachel Maddow and journalist Bob Woodruff. Plus, we revisit our time with old friends Brad Paisley and Damian Lillard. Join us for the news quiz from NPR.
30: Saturdays and Sundays at 10
6: on 90.9 WBUR.
20: Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. One day before the third anniversary of the insurrection on the U.S. Capitol, Attorney General Merrick Garland praised the actions of law enforcement inside the Capitol that day. Garland says more than 1,200 people have been charged with federal crimes in the riot. For many of the law
6: enforcement officers defending the Capitol on that day, January 6th was also dangerous, painful and personal. Several
20: officers suffered violent injuries, including being crushed by a door, thrown down a flight of stairs, and targeted with chemicals by the crowds. A.G. Garland says about 730 people have pleaded guilty to charges, and the Justice Department will hold all those involved responsible. Earlier today, President Biden reminded voters to never forget the January 6th attack, saying the man he'll likely be running against next fall is a danger to democracy. In Florida, a proposed amendment to enshrine abortion rights protections into the state's constitution there is a step closer to making it on the November ballot. Supporters say they've submitted enough valid petition signatures, as Kathy Carter of Member Station WSF reports.
18: The Protecting Freedom began collecting signatures in May in an effort to put the issue to voters. Abortion is banned at 15 weeks in Florida, but a six-week limit could go into effect pending the outcome of a legal challenge. The group's director, Lauren Brenzel, says the petition shows that Floridians support abortion rights.
3: They want a chance to vote on this initiative, and they've made it clear by signing millions and millions of pieces of paper to make sure that this gets on the ballot.
18: The proposed amendment still needs the approval of the Florida Supreme Court to qualify. The state's Republican attorney general is urging the court to disqualify it from the ballot. For NPR News, I'm Kathy Carter in Tampa.
20: Stocks finished higher to end the week on Wall Street. The Dow added 25 points. This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The weekend snowstorm is expected to deliver the first plowable snow of the season. The National Weather Service has a winter storm warning in effect from tomorrow afternoon through Sunday. WBR's meteorologist Danielle Noyes says the heaviest snow will fall well away from Boston and the coastline.
5: This is a scenario where somewhere like Logan Airport in the city of Boston has like a you know couple inches, and then just west of town it goes to two to four, and then four to six along the 128 to 495 belt where it's going to ramp up six to eight and probably eight plus from places like the Worcester Hills. Um, you know, into Southern New Hampshire, into the Merrimack Valley. South Shorts, probably an inch or two, just inland of the South Shorts, more like two to four. And then this is a mainly rain event for Cape Cod. So the jackpot totals will be North and West of Boston for this one.
0: The state highway commissioner says the city has sufficient drivers and equipment on standby to clear the roads and highways. CBS plans to shut down its downtown crossing store in Boston next month. The company says the store at 55 Summer Street will close in early February. Prescriptions will be transferred to a nearby CBS pharmacy. Employees will be able to work at other stores. The closure will leave CBS with 21 pharmacies in the city. The company says there are no immediate closures planned for the other areas. Patriots coach Bill Belichick today is not addressing rumors that this might be his last season in New England. The Patriots play their final game of the season on Sunday in Foxborough against the Jets. At his regular scheduled Friday news conference, Belichick did not address rumors that this might be his last season here, but he did quickly reflect on his more than two decades as Pat's head coach.
20: I've always appreciated the opportunity and um, you know, just looking forward to you know, tomorrow's game or Sunday's game against the Jets. And you know, like I said, trying to put our best game out there this year.
0: The Patriots have not had a deep playoff run since they won their last
27: Super Bowl. That was in 2019. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at howdoyouseetheworld.com
0: once again in brief winter should arrive late tomorrow afternoon or early in the evening stick around until sunday afternoon could be rainy breaks here and there by the time it all ends boston could have just a couple of inches of wet snow immediately to the west there could be up to four up to six along route 128 and then up to eight inches toward the interior
15: it's 5:35. support for npr comes from this station And from the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, dedicated to improving the learning experience for America's students by sharing what works in pre-K through 12 education at edutopia.org. From the Langloth Foundation, supporting justice, equity, and opportunity for all people to foster and sustain safe and healthy communities. Learn more at langloth.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station.
7: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Cities that imposed taxes on sugary drinks saw prices rise and consumption fall. That is according to a study published today in the journal JAMA Health Forum. Researchers say this provides more evidence that these controversial taxes really do work. Joining me to talk it through, NPR's Maria Godoy. Hey there. Hi. So which cities have done this? What are we talking here?
26: Well, we're talking about five U.S. cities that introduced the taxes between 2017 and 2018. So Oakland and San Francisco in California, Seattle, Boulder, Colorado, and Philadelphia. The taxes ranged from one to two cents per ounce. So for a two-liter bottle, that would be about 67 cents to $1.30 extra in taxes. And studies have looked at the effect of soda taxes before, but they usually studied one city at a time. This new study looked at multiple cities at the same time to get an idea of what might happen if these taxes were more widespread.
7: And what did happen? What did the researchers find?
26: Well, you know, prices went up by about 33 percent and purchases went down by about the same amount, 33 percent. Scott Kaplan is the economics professor at the U.S. Naval Academy. He led the study and he says that's actually a big effect.
31: In other words, for every 1 percent increase in price, we find that Purchases fall by about one percent.
26: So when people had to pay more
7: for sugary drinks, they reduced their consumption. Maria, my mind, of course, is shooting straight to ways that people could game this. Couldn't, (laughs) Couldn't people have just, I don't know, driven to the next city over, driven to the suburbs, found soda that was still cheaper?
26: Yeah, you know, that's a good point. And earlier research in Philadelphia found that while sales of sugary drinks went down in that city, They actually went up in surrounding areas, indicating that people yet were driving to avoid the taxes. But this new study didn't find that. Across the five U.S. cities they looked at, those cross-border sales didn't increase.
7: So it worked is what you're telling me. I mean, that's the stated goal of these taxes is curbing consumption.
26: Well, you know, from a public health standpoint, sugary drinks really have no nutritional value. And as Kaplan noted, you tend to guzzle them without registering the calories, so they don't fill you up.
31: Sugars would never just make up like a quarter of all the added sugar we see in the average adult American diet, and, and that's a really big amount.
26: And, of course, too much sugar is linked to a host of bad health outcomes, like diabetes, obesity, heart disease, so these taxes are designed to discourage people from drinking so much sugar. In fact, back in 2019, both the American Heart Association and the American Academy of Pediatricians officially endorsed soda taxes as a good way to reduce the risk of childhood obesity. And just last month, the World Health Organization called on countries to increase taxes on sugary drinks.
7: Although, as we noted right at the start, these are really controversial. There's all kinds of pushback to these taxes.
26: Well, right. The U.S. uh, saw a flurry of localities pass these sugary drinks starting about a decade ago. And then there was pushback, and the soda industry poured millions of dollars into fighting them. In some states, opponents passed laws that basically stripped localities of the power to be able to pass soda taxes. So they kind of stalled. In a statement to NPR, the American Beverage Association said that the industry's strategy of offering more choices with less sugar is working, and that nearly 60% of beverages sold today have zero sugar. They say these drink taxes are unproductive and hurt consumers. Thank you, Maria.
3: My pleasure. NPR's Maria Godoy. 2023 was a great year for playing video games, Baldur's Gate 3, Legend of Zelda, Tears of the Kingdom, Resident Evil 4. But for the industry itself, it was a year of uncertainty and disruption. There were massive mergers, layoffs, and questions about emerging technology. Today, Shannon Liao, deputy gaming editor of Inverse, is here to take stock of all of that and talk about what it means for the video games that we will see coming out this year. Hi, Shannon. Hey, Wana. All right, Shannon, let's first of all start with the games that we know are expected to come out in 2024. What are you most excited about?
37: Yeah, 2024 is looking to be a jam-packed year as well. Final Fantasy VII Rebirth is the big one that everyone is looking forward to. It's upon us, the reunion, when worlds merge. And Rebirth is looking to do more with those like iconic characters like Cloud Strife and Sephiroth and other folks. So that's like the big one that everyone is is waiting with bated breath for. Um, I would also say like Princess Peach Showtime. We're just getting to explore more of that uh, typical princess character you saw in all the Super Mario games. But finally, she gets to be the center of attention and do a lot of different uh, activities like you know, fighting with swords or like baking cakes and and doing kung
14: fu. The stage is set. Our leading lady is ready for the spotlight.
37: I think one that doesn't get talked about as much is like Tales of the Shire, which is um, going to be a cozy farming simulator with Lord of the Rings. And, you know, there's been so many Lord of the Rings games and this time to see one that is set in the Shire and where you can be a hobbit um, should be fun for people.
3: Shannon, as we were talking about, there was a lot of disruption and there were a lot of shakeups within the industry last year. I wonder if you could just remind us of some of the highlights and tell us how you think all of that will impact what we see from the gaming industry in 2024.
37: Looking back at 2023, it was a huge year for mergers and acquisitions. Just the fact that Microsoft closed a deal to buy Activision Blizzard, the makers of World of Warcraft, Call of Duty, Diablo for almost 69 billion dollars and as a result now you know the same people who own xbox and halo now own guitar hero crash bandicoot uh, candy crush and so i'm really curious to see what they do with all of these different franchises and another big thing from last year was just a lot of layoffs so it's been like popularly said like it was a very good year for video game releases, but not so good for the studios that make those games and the employees on some of these like well-liked franchises and a lot of these companies have come out with statements saying like, oh, it's because, you know, in the pandemic when people were staying home, a lot of people were playing our games and in 2023 last year, like people were starting to go outside more and they weren't just spending as much money on video games. And that's just been uh, this overarching trend that might you know, lead into 2024 where people, uh, financial analysts are not certain about uh, what the state of the industry is this year and if companies will continue to cut costs or if those employees who are still looking for jobs can, can finally land on their feet.
3: Yeah. As you think about the upcoming year in gaming, I'm curious, just as a reporter who follows this industry so closely. What's the biggest question that you have that you're hoping to answer this year about the state of gaming?
37: Personally, I'm very curious to see if the role of AI, which has been you know very hyped up last year uh, with tools like ChatGPT, Mid Journey, and Stable Diffusion, if they are going to play a role in the kinds of graphics, quality of games that we see this year. Because like I talked to studios about the use of AI, and they are you know at one point um thinking like it, it could make video games look better, more immersive and be cheaper to produce. So at the same time, uh, it could be, you know, automating parts of a video game that a human was once making and also come at the cost of jobs. So I'd be curious to see, you know, how that massive tech trend is going to shake up the world of video games.
3: That's Shannon Liao, deputy gaming editor at Enverse. Shannon,
22: thank
37: you. Thanks, Wana. This
7: is All Things Considered from NPR News. Black women in the U.S. are three times more likely to die from pregnancy-related causes than white women. That racial disparity is true even in California, which has a maternal mortality rate lower than the national average. Now a program in Oakland is trying to change those outcomes and possibly provide a model for other parts of the state. Daisy Wynn from Member Station KQED reports.
28: In East Oakland, there's an old shopping mall converted into a community wellness center. And down one corridor, a room filled with music and laughter. Today, half a dozen black women in their third trimester are here for prenatal checkups. They take turns going behind a wall divider, where a midwife measures their blood pressure and their baby's heartbeat. Then, they have two hours with Black midwives and doulas, where they can ask questions to help them make informed decisions about their medical care. Jaisha Ren is a midwife and program director of Beloved Birth Black Centering. She says prenatal visits typically last 15 minutes, not long enough for patients to get all the information they need. There's no
29: time for them to be taking charge of their health care in that way and knowing what's going on with their bodies um, and making their decisions and having them respected.
28: The extra time is possible because they're in a group. Over the past three years, Beloved Birth has served more than 200 Black women in groups like this who qualify for Medi-Cal, the state's insurance program for low-income patients. A combination of public funds and private grants pay for things like childbirth education, tools to help them check their vital signs at home, and free produce and postpartum meals delivered to their door. Addressing this issue of health equity
4: is, is really important.
28: Kim Harley researches maternal health at UC Berkeley's School of Public Health. She says Black pregnant people are at a higher risk of hypertension, preeclampsia, and other life-threatening conditions. There are many
4: sort of factors that may be driving this, but the primary factor behind all of that is racism in all of its forms.
28: Harley says that the constant stress of experiencing racism can lead to things like hypertension, and discrimination can also translate to subpar maternity care. A recent CDC survey found that one in three women of color reported being mistreated while receiving that care. Common complaints included requests for help being ignored and unwanted treatment being forced on them. Jaisha Ren says, "Beloved Birth is tackling racial bias in healthcare by pairing Black patients with a healthcare team that looks like them."
29: The research is now showing so strongly a correlation between improved care experiences, as well as health outcomes and survival, even when it comes to things like um, infant mortality, uh, when folks are cared for by by people really of their community.
28: For program participant Tajay Harris, the group has given her a network of support,
5: and it's such a safe space that we all just like click and we just kick it together and there what we're learning.
28: She says she's learned a lot that has made her feel more confident about giving birth.
5: Like coping during labor, different things to ask the doctors, different things to make you feel safe.
28: Ren says it was possible to launch a program like this in Oakland because the city is home to many Black midwives and doulas. That's not the norm in most places. Black people only represent about 7% of midwives. But she thinks other aspects of the program, like group care and wraparound social services, can be implemented anywhere. California is looking to introduce the program to other public health care systems. For NPR News, I'm Daisy Nguyen in Oakland. You're listening
0: to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up in about 15 minutes. The leader of the National Rifle Association has resigned after three decades. We'll hear about Wayne LaPierre's tenure coming up on WBUR. And on business news, while many small businesses feel back on track after pandemic setbacks, they face new challenges every year.
28: Food businesses in general are really tough, and margins are are slim, and costs are high. And so
13: I think that those problems will keep coming. Like It's not smooth sailing
35: from here on
13: out.
0: A new year of business at one ice cream shop in New York City coming up on Marketplace starting at 6.30. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners,
18: and by Johnson and Wales, committed to going beyond the classroom by helping students develop networks and experience in fields like healthcare, business, and cybersecurity.
19: Roseanne Cash says mixing art and love can be tricky
1: we can definitely bring personal stuff into the studio he says i don't want you to sing that note and i think he doesn't love me
19: (laughs) the wheel the album that brought her and her husband slash producer john leventhal together has been re-released 30 years later that conversation saturday on weekend edition from npr news start your weekend here tomorrow
0: There's a winter storm warning posted for tomorrow into Sunday. WBR's meteorologist Danielle Noyes is not calling this a major snowstorm for Boston, but there will be an impact elsewhere. She says the snow should begin to fall late tomorrow afternoon.
5: The height of the storm Sunday morning through midday before everything
0: tapers off the second
5: half of Sunday as the storm pulls away. We'll see a mix with and change over to rain in the city of Boston and at the coast. The rain-snow line likely to set up somewhere along the 128 or 495 belt. North and west of that, the highest totals, around or more than 6 inches possible. Less than that, more like a few inches or less closer to the coast. Mainly rain event on the south shore and Cape, some wind gusts to 40 miles per hour at the coast. Biggest impacts, tough travel Sunday, and isolated outages where the heaviest snow falls.
0: In Boston, 30 degrees now at 550. From NPR News, this is All Things
7: Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Maybe you had a little too much fun on New Year's Eve. Or maybe you've got health goals for this new year. Either way, so-called med spas offer products they say can help, especially IV drips for hydration boosted with vitamins. Even injections they claim will help burn fat. Well, evidence that IV therapy is helpful for healthy people is anecdotal at best, and there are no federal regulations for med spas. So as the industry has grown, so too have warnings about the risks. Health reporter Erica Edwards has been investigating this for NBC News. She's with me now. Hi there. Hi. Hi. I want to understand what kind of clinics we're talking about here. You you report this is a 15 billion dollar industry. So it sounds like they're they're everywhere, very easy to find.
4: Yeah, these med spas, or sometimes they're called IV hydration clinics, just as you said, you know, they offer vitamin shots to boost your energy, IVs to replenish fluids, improve the appearance of skin. Sometimes there are those brick and mortar med spas you can visit, but sometimes they advertise their services on social media. And some are actually mobile med spas. That is, they come to you. They go to the client's home or business. Huh. And I the whole name
7: is throwing me, I guess, because you hear med spa and you think, medical, this is legit. Like this person giving me an IV must have the right authority and training. Is that part of the appeal for people?
4: Yeah, I think so. And to be fair, I mean, many med spas are operating safely with properly trained, licensed workers and are following basic sanitation and safety guidelines. But the industry has grown so fast that oversight is really lacking. There are no federal standards for med spas. They're regulated by the states. States have different rules, some much more lax than others. And the American Med Spa Association even says that state authorities really just don't have the time or the resources to make sure these spas are following their own laws.
7: I want you to tell us the story of uh, one woman you talked to. She went to a med spa in Los Angeles. What happened?
4: Yeah. Bia Ama, she's 26 years old. Back in 2021, she was an aspiring health and fitness influencer on social media. Um, The combination of work and a big move cross country had her feeling fatigued, so she went to a med spa uh, in hopes of getting an energy boost. She thought that shots of vitamin B12 would help. And she said that the worker at the spa sold her on a shot that also included vitamin C and another ingredient called deoxycholic acid. which is meant to dissolve fat cells. ama said, go for it. Uh, and she said she was injected more than 100 times on her arms, her stomach area, and her Sorry, backside. more than 100 times? More than 100 times. Okay. But within 24 hours, Amma said that all of those injection spots erupted, became inflamed, and she said that it felt like her entire body was on fire, she was dizzy, she spiked a fever. Doctors later found that she had an aggressive drug-resistant bacterial infection. Now, the bacteria they found is actually pretty common. It's found in water and soil, and it can be associated with contaminated medical devices if equipment is not sterilized properly. Amma's case was so bad, she is still scarred, and she remains on heavy-duty antibiotics nearly three years later.
7: I imagine you also talked to people who who had good experiences here.
4: You know, it's interesting. I've talked with people with long COVID, for example, who say, and again, this is all anecdotal, but they say that they go in, you know, monthly, sometimes twice a month for an energy boost. They say that these IVs and hydration really kind of help boost their mood and their energy level for at least a few weeks. The FDA
7: has issued warnings about med spas. What are their concerns?
4: Yeah, you're right. The agency issued two consumer alerts in the past few years. One said that some med spas were mixing products without proper sterilization, and another warned that spas were employing people who were unlicensed, meaning they had not been trained properly to administer a shot or an IV, and using unapproved fat-dissolving ingredients, like the one Bia Amo was given. Okay, so if someone
7: wants to go, is making a decision to go to a med spa, what type things should they look for? What type questions should
4: they ask to minimize risk? Yeah, there are a few questions to ask. Number one, who owns and operates the med spa? A doctor should be playing some kind of role here. The other one is, who is administering my treatment and what credentials does that person have? I mean, it might be uncomfortable, but don't be afraid to ask to see a license or a diploma. And the other question is, you know, is there a licensed medical practitioner on site in case I have complications? The should also do a basic health exam before any procedure to make sure that there are no underlying conditions or drug interactions that might increase the risk for complications. Erica Edwards, health reporter
7: for NBC News, thank you for sharing your reporting with us. Thank you for having me. The Grambling State University women's basketball team set a Division I record this week by outscoring their opponents by wait for it 141 points and the ball goes out
26: the grandma and lady tigers harassing the lady ambassadors on these final sections of the court it seems like they may hold it with the score being 159 to 18
7: I'm just going to repeat that final score for you, 159-18. to Wow. The Tigers' historic
3: win came while playing on their home court in Louisiana. They were relentless against the team from the College of Biblical Studies based in Houston. The win set a new NCAA record for margin of victory. It's impressive that they were able to win by 141 points that's kelly lawson freeman a contributing writer for yahoo sports she says the record-setting score was a team effort
23: every single one of their players on their roster scored over six points so things like that are worth being excited about sure she says as exciting as the game was
7: for grambling fans running up the score against a mismatched team is not
23: universally appreciated It's definitely controversial when a team scores as many points as Grambling State did. So, yes, they scored 159 points, which is great, but their opponent only scored 18. In the College of Biblical Studies, they introduced basketball as a sport for the first time this year. Controversial or not, Grambling head coach Courtney Simmons is proud of her team. We scored 159 points. That's unheard of in a collegiate basketball game. That's unheard of at any level. And Grambling State University will forever be in the NCAA record books as the biggest margin of defeat, which was 141 points. That is unheard of. And it may never be broken again. The win took Grambling's record
3: to just one game above 500. So Coach Simmons says she knows what it's like
23: to lose. So, yeah, we have been on the other side of that this season. Right, maybe not a 141 point loss because we're going to play a little defense, but you know, we've taken our fair share of ass whoopers this year as well. And so it doesn't feel good, but it is a part of sports. If you put your shoes on and you lace them up the way I do. You know, let the best man win. And unfortunately for College of Biblical Studies, on Tuesday night it was Graham State Women's Basketball.
3: We wanted to hear from the team from the College of Biblical Studies to get their take on this game. But they did not return our messages. Maybe they're out on the practice
7: court? Oh, harsh.
15: You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. From BritBox, with the goal of helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original series Archie, The Man Who Became Cary Grant, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. Clouds move in overnight tonight. Gray skies during the day tomorrow. Then snowfall starts late tomorrow. Packs a punch through the night. Sunday morning snowfall that should end sometime in the afternoon, but gusty winds remain.
27: The full forecast is coming up. This is WBUR, 30 degrees in Boston at 559. WBUR supporters include Arts Emerson. The classic Moby Dick story is told anew with captivating life size and whale size puppetry. January 23rd to 29th, artsemerson.org.
25: I'm
30: here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at
0: WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. One of the Americans most instrumental in shaping gun culture and gun policy in this country is stepping down from his post. Wayne LaPierre has led the National Rifle Association for more than three decades. The announcement of his resignation comes on the eve of his corruption trial in Manhattan. It's Friday, January 5th, and this is All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins, also ahead. To deal with a record number of migrants from Mexico, Arizona closed four border crossings for a month. People in the bordering towns were not happy.
6: We're glad to see that this only lasted a month, but one month was pretty devastating for our businesses and for visitation and tourism in our town.
0: Yesterday, Arizona reopened the crossings. Florida is one step closer to being able to import cheaper prescription drugs from Canada and how to eat mindfully, including remembering to chew it's
35: 6:01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Speer. The Supreme Court is agreeing to consider whether former President Donald Trump should be disqualified from the ballot in Colorado. It's thrusting the justices into the heart of the 2024 presidential campaign. The court says it will hear oral arguments in the case February 8th. Both Trump and Colorado voters who sued bar him had asked the high court to weigh in and determine whether a part of the 14th Amendment, designed to keep Confederates out of government after the Civil War, should apply to the former president and leading contender for the GOP nomination. The question is an urgent one since states are preparing to print ballots. Colorado officials have already said Trump would remain on the ballot during the course of an appeal. House Democrats gathered outside the Capitol building today to mark nearly 3 years since the January 6 insurrection. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports lawmakers are using the anniversary to underscore the importance of protecting American democracy as voters head to the polls later this year.
21: House Republicans stood in a huddle holding up signs that read "Democracy is on the line" and "Not above the law." Congressman Jamie Raskin, who led the second impeachment effort against then-President Trump, said January 6th is a metaphor for everything that's at stake in the upcoming election.
2: It's about whether we're going to have democratic government, a government that is an instrument for the common good of all the people, or whether we're going to have government that is an instrument for private self-enrichment of a dictator who gets in. That's really the choice on the table for Americans.
21: Saturday marks three years since a mob of Trump supporters stormed the Capitol in an effort to stop Congress from certifying the results of the 2020 election. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, the Capitol.
35: Attorney General Merrick Garland said today more than 500 gun purchases have been blocked since a new law requiring stricter background checks went into effect last year. The law passed was the most sweeping gun legislation in decades and requires extra checks for anyone under the age of 21 buying a gun. President Biden has hailed the new law and called for additional measures to help stop gun violence. The Department of Veterans Affairs will begin funding studies into therapeutic use of psychedelic drugs. NPR's Quill Lawrence reports the drugs may help treat depression and PTSD.
19: Veterans and some VA researchers had been lobbying for the study of psychedelics. The FDA has allowed study of drugs like MDMA and psilocybin mushrooms for several years, with preliminary results showing clinical benefits when used along with therapy. This new order allows federal VA funding for studies nationwide on psychedelics for the first time since the 1960s. VA does not recommend veterans try to treat themselves with psychedelics and stressed that studies would be done under strict safety protocols. Many vets organizations and a bipartisan group of lawmakers have also been pushing to allow the VA to prescribe medical marijuana in states where it is legal. Quill Lawrence, NPR News.
35: Stocks closed slightly higher today. The Dow was up 25 points. The Nasdaq rose 13 points. This is NPR.
19: This is
0: 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Time to break out the shovels and snow gear. The National Weather Service has issued a winter storm warning for tomorrow afternoon through Sunday. The bulk of the snow will be north and west of Boston. Six to eight inches of snow could fall outside Route 128 with higher amounts in the Merrimack Valley and the Worcester Hills. State Highway Commissioner Jonathan Gulliver says the state has plenty of drivers, salt and sand, and 3,000 pieces of equipment on standby. He says this is just the type of storm they like.
6: The timing is great. It's uh, coming in uh, on a Saturday night and rolling into Sunday, which means that we're not dealing with commuting traffic. Uh, that makes everything a lot easier for us, gives us a lot more room to, to do what we need to do.
0: The city of Boston does not expect to declare a snow emergency. Massachusetts is the latest state where some residents are trying to get Donald Trump's name removed from the state's presidential primary ballot. State Republican Party Chair Amy Carnavalli tells WBUR's Radio Boston that voters should decide who becomes the party's nominee.
7: Allowing uh, the ballot commission uh, to make that decision for voters is really anti-democratic.
0: Lawyer and former state attorney general candidate Shannon Lis Reardon is leading the removal effort. She says there are laws that determine who is eligible for a candidate to for office. Boston celebrity chef Barbara Lynch is shutting down three of her signature restaurants and laying off 100 staffers. The venues that will close are Montan, Sportello and Drink, all in Boston's Fort Point. Lynch will sell two restaurants in the South End. Here's WBR's Barbara Moran.
23: Chief Operating Officer Lorraine Tomlinson-Hall said the closing restaurants struggled to make a steady profit and fell three months behind on their rent.
5: I think the whole industry has felt the squeeze coming out of the pandemic, where all of The sector had struggled to get back on the even keel that they'd
23: known before. Three Lynch restaurants will remain open. Number Nine Park and B&G Oysters in Boston and The Rudder in Gloucester. News of the dramatic restructuring comes months after employees accused Lynch of creating a toxic workplace in her restaurants. Lynch has denied the claims. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Once again,
0: snowfall starts late tomorrow, packs a punch through tomorrow night until Sunday morning. Snowfall should end eventually Sunday afternoon. Gusty winds, though, and intermittent rain should make for a messy mix.
8: This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Jarl and Pamela Moon, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. On a Friday. It's all
7: things considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. In a moment, we'll remember David Soule from the
3: 1970s TV show Starsky and Hutch. But first, the longtime head of the National Rifle Association is stepping down. The NRA announced today that Wayne LaPierre is leaving his post as chief executive of the powerful gun rights group at the end of this month. The announcement about LaPierre's departure comes on the eve of a corruption trial in New York that could up And the NRA. Joining us now with more is NPR's Joel Rose. Hi, Joel. Hi, Wana. So, Joel, just to get us started, remind us who Wayne LaPierre is and why this departure is such a big deal.
9: Yeah, LaPierre is really one of the chief architects of the modern gun rights movement. He's led the NRA since 1991, was part of the inner circle that moved the NRA to a far more hardline stance on gun regulation at a time when mass shootings and other gun violence were rising. LaPierre was once a kingmaker in American politics, hugely influential in Republican circles, but also among many rural Democrats. Um, He was also a major target for gun control activists, particularly after mass shootings at the Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut and at a high school in Parkland, Florida. LaPierre rejected attempts to change gun policy in the wake of those shootings and and used the specter of more gun controls to fundraise for the Uh, NRA.
3: Yeah, I mean, he's been quite a fixture. So tell us what exactly happened to bring about this dramatic fall?
9: Well, you have to go back to 2019, which is when claims of mismanagement and corruption began to surface, first from dissenters inside the NRA. LaPierre survived that, but there is a corruption lawsuit against him and the NRA that is set to go to trial on Monday in Manhattan. New York's Attorney General Letitia James launched an investigation and in 2020 filed this lawsuit. She accuses LaPierre uh, and other current and former officials of misappropriating funds from the NRA, which is a, a nonprofit. But behind the scenes, the suit alleges they were basically cheating donors, using contributions to pay for private luxuries, things like no-show jobs for friends and allies. LaPierre denies those allegations. The case has taken several years to get to jury selection. Uh, and that started this week.
3: Right. So, Joel, did the NRA or LaPierre himself say why he's chosen to step down now?
9: In a statement announcing his resignation, the NRA says LaPierre cited his health as the reason for his decision. LaPierre is 74. He has led the NRA for more than 30 years since 1991. But of course, you know, it's hard to ignore the elephant in the room, which is this corruption trial looming over all of this. The NRA says it will continue to fight that lawsuit, and and Wayne LaPierre is still a defendant in his private capacity uh, as the case goes to trial.
3: Okay, big picture here, Joel. What does all of this mean for the future of the National Rifle Association?
9: You know, it's hard to say for sure. The NRA did win a legal victory earlier in this case. The New York Attorney General was seeking to dissolve the organization, and a New York judge shut that effort down. But this legal fight and and the scandal for lapierre personally clearly have been bad for the nra they have lost a ton of members contributions are way down from their highs Uh, they've had to shut down their media operations the organization even tried uh, unsuccessfully to file for bankruptcy this trial will really decide what the future shape of the nra could be if the organization loses it could be subject to significant oversight from the new york attorney general going forward which would really hobble what it could do as an organization.
7: And Harris Joel Rose. Thank you, Joel. You're welcome. To the border now, where four crossings with Mexico reopened yesterday after the federal government closed them late last year. That was in response to as many as 10,000 people a day crossing the border. Arizona Public Media's Danielle Camara went to the port of entry at Lukeville, Arizona, which was closed for 30 days
10: the Lukeville port is a direct route from Arizona to popular beaches at Rocky Point, and a vital connection between the small cross-border communities of Ajo, Arizona and Sonoita in Sonora. Sergio Hernandez owns Tacos El Tarasco restaurant in Ajo. He says he lost nearly half his revenue during the month-long closure. And another complication? All his employees live on the Mexico side of the border. So what was a 40-minute commute became close to six hours.
11: If it happens again, I don't know where we're going to do it. Maybe downsize or move my business
10: somewhere else. More than a million cars pass through the town of about 3,200 people every year, says Bo Johnson with the Ajo Chamber of Commerce. And the closure happened during what is usually the busiest time, when businesses make critical revenue to make it through the slow summer months.
6: We're glad to see that this only lasted a month, but one month was pretty devastating as far as revenue for our businesses and for visitation and tourism in our town.
10: Arizona has become the epicenter of migrant crossings in recent months, with Border Patrol apprehending upwards of 70,000 people in December. After the border closure, Democratic Governor Katie Hobbs called out the National Guard to assist local law enforcement with border security measures. Toward the end of December, the numbers of migrants slowed, which allowed the Department of Homeland Security to reopen the ports of entry, says DHS's Blas Nunez Nieto.
12: That reduction you know, may be the result of seasonal trends. We usually do see a decline in encounters this time of year. And it could also be the result of some uh, coordinated enforcement actions that we are taking with the government of Mexico over the last couple of weeks.
10: Nunez-Nieto says future closures are a possibility if migrant numbers increase again. For NPR News, I'm Danielle Camara in Lukeville, Arizona. Prescription drugs are generally
3: cheaper in Canada than they are here in the U.S. And now Florida is a step closer to being able to import them because of a shift in policy by the Food and Drug Administration. NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lupkin is here to talk with us about that. Hi, Sydney. Hi, Juana. So, Sydney, first, what exactly did the FDA do here?
13: So. The agency authorized Florida's proposal for a drug importation program that would allow the state to buy cheaper drugs from Canada. Under federal law, any state or tribe can submit one of these program proposals, and a few have. The law allows importation of certain prescription drugs in bulk, if doing so would save Americans money without adding safety risks. It excludes some very expensive drugs. Florida's proposal is the first to be okayed by the agency, but this is just a step. A lot more has to happen before before Floridians, mainly those on the state Medicaid, program, for instance, could benefit from Canada's lower drug prices. Okay, I'm sensing there might be some hurdles here. What kind are we talking about? Oh my gosh, all kinds of hurdles. So first, the FDA wants Florida to specify which drugs it wants to import. Florida also has to verify that the drugs meet FDA's quality standards and relabel those drugs. And that's a big undertaking. Here's Aaron Kesselheim, a professor at Harvard Medical
27: School.
6: I think it's going to be very challenging for this sort of arrangement to make products available widely to patients at lower prices.
13: Meanwhile, the drug industry is expected to put up a fight. The head of the trade group, Pharma, has already called the FDA authorization reckless and said it is considering all options for preventing this policy from, quote, harming patients. So the industry will likely sue. And Canada has been reluctant to play ball on this because this program could lead to drug shortages and increased prices in Canada.
3: Right. I mean, Sydney, this is a popular idea here in the U.S. to import Mm -hmm. drugs from Canada and save money, but how
13: could Florida actually do this without Canada being on board with it? Right. Uh, It seems like it, it couldn't. So one thing to keep in mind is that Canada has a lot fewer people than the U.S. does, only around 40 million, which is about the same size as California. When Canada buys drugs and negotiates their prices, something the U.S. doesn't do across the board, it's buying for that smaller population. So, to have to supply Florida and other potential states with drugs through these importation programs, then that just doesn't work. And the industry can resist. Companies making branded drugs could try to limit their supply going into Canada so that it can't keep up with new demand from the U.S. Um, and there won't be enough to send to Florida or whatever other state decides to do this.
3: OK, so it does not sound to me like this is the wholesale solution to all of the drug price problems we're seeing here in the U.S., huh?
13: No, unfortunately, it's probably not. When I asked uh, Kesselheim from Harvard how soon before Floridians might benefit from this program, he said, possibly never. Um, that st- it's, it's still a big step because the FDA is saying for the first time in years that, yes, drug importation like this can be done safely. Um, I also spoke to Tricia Newman, who directs the program on Medicare policy at KFF, a health policy nonprofit. She said, Importing cheaper drugs from Canada isn't any kind of comprehensive solution to America's drug price problem. Instead, the drug price negotiation that's begun in Medicare through the Inflation Reduction Act is a much better way to rein those high prices in. The administration is currently working on negotiations for its first 10 drugs. Uh, those prices will be announced in the fall and they could go into effect uh, in 2026. NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lumpkin. Thank you, Sydney.
7: You bet. David Soul, star of the 1970s cop show Starsky and Hutch, has died at 80. No cause of death was given. Soule played Detective Kenneth Hutch Hutchinson, alongside co-star Paul Michael Glazer as David Starsky. Now fans will remember the iconic duo patrolling the streets of the fictional Bay City, California, in that bright red striped Gran Torino.
14: Look, the engine had a 375 cubic inch. You just want me to drive around in a stripe of tomato like you got? My car's a stripe of what?
3: While best known for playing Hutch, Soul got his start in entertainment as a singer.
14: I am the covered man.
3: Wearing all black and a ski mask, Soul's act as the covered man kickstarted his career on the TV talk show circuit. As an actor, Sol also played roles in the 1960s comedy western series Here Come the Brides and the noir thriller film Magnum Force.
7: After the success of Starsky and Hutch, Sol returned to music. His song Don't Give Up On Us was a hit worldwide, topping charts here in the U.S. and the U.K.
14: Don't give up on us, baby, don't make the world seem right. The future isn't just one night, it's written in the moonlight. We're painted on the stars, we can't change our Don't give up on us, baby. We're still worth one more try.
7: Thanks for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the Supreme Court says it will take up the issue of whether former President Donald Trump should be disqualified from the ballot in Colorado. This thrusts the justices into the heart of the 2024 presidential campaign. Follow this developing story right here at 90.9 WBUR.
8: WBUR supporters include semester off. Integrating wellness, mental health, and academia in a compassionate and structured setting, Where college age students and high school grads can form friendships, experience deep personal growth, and boost their confidence. Spring semester starts January 22nd. Semesteroff.com.
0: A slight upswing to the first week of the trading for the year. The Dow gained less than a tenth of a percent. S and P rose about two tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq eked out a one tenth of a percent gain. A Boston-based startup has gotten approval from federal regulators to expand the use of its artificial intelligence technology. Vidia Health can now use its Vidia Dental Assist tool to scan X-rays and potentially spot more than thirty oral diseases. The product was previously only clear to detect cavities
8: and bone level loss in adults. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, integrating wellness, mental health, and academia in a compassionate and structured setting where college-age students and high school grads can form friendships, experience deep personal growth, and boost their confidence. Spring semester starts January 22nd. SemesterOff.com. Winter weather
0: arrives for real tomorrow. Here's WBR's meteorologist, Danielle Noyce. A plowable snow
5: on the way. Snow arrives 8 to 10 p.m. tomorrow. Rain snow line will work into the city of Boston, hug the coastline wobbling for a time tomorrow night. North and west of it, heaviest snow will fall. The height of the storm, midnight to 8 a.m. Sunday. Everything will taper off after that. I do expect to change back to snow in Boston towards the tail end Sunday afternoon before the back edge comes in. Snow totals a couple inches in the city, though just west of Boston we jump to 2 to 4. And 4 to 6 inches long, 128, with 6 to 8 west of that, up to portions of the Merrimack Valley, some higher totals in the Worcester Hills, an inch or two on the south shore, and a mainly rain event on the Cape, where the wind gusts to 45 miles per hour Sunday morning and afternoon. Wind chills for everybody, only in the teens Sunday.
0: 30 degrees now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR at 621.
8: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson. Top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA.
7: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise
3: Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Do you ever eat way too fast and accidentally bite the inside of your mouth or just feel really bloated and uncomfortable? There are a lot of reasons we scarf down our food. Tight deadlines, short lunch breaks at work, rushing to get somewhere. If you're working on building better eating habits in the new year, you might want to try eating mindfully.
16: Mindful eating practice encourages us to make choices that are satisfying and nourishing to the body. Lillian Chung is the Director of Mindfulness Research and
3: Practice at Harvard University. She practices and researches mindful eating, which asks us to slow down and notice our food. NPR Life Kit host Marielle Seguera asked her for tips we can use to eat at a healthy pace.
17: Lillian, how fast are we supposed to eat a meal? Like, Is there a standard we should be following?
10: Well,
16: most you'll find most nutritionists urging us to take 20 minutes for a meal because it takes about that time for your body to get the signal to the brain that you are full.
24: Mm.
16: If you eat fast, your brain is not getting the signal that you are full until about 20 minutes and it involves the nervous system as well as hormonal system. Okay,
17: so let's get into some of the, the really practical tips here. If you want to start to slow down when you eat or to eat at a healthy pace, um, what are some principles you can follow? First is allocate time to eat and only
16: eat. And make sure your cell phone is not with you or is face down. You're not going to be responding to any messages that come through. And then to make sure we engage all our senses, be with the food and ask yourself, what's on my plate? How hungry am I today in this meal? Mm. And notice the taste really. The recipe that I just cooked, is it too salty? Does it need something else that I can improve it next time? And engage your smell, all your senses, the texture, and whatever thought that arose as you eat, because there might be some emotional aspects Mm -hmm. related to the food and be
17: aware of it. Okay, let's say you make a meal that is something that your your grandmother used to make for you and you're eating it and you're tasting, "Oh my god, this tastes just like my grandma's stuffed cabbage." You know, like that's an emotional reaction that you can have to a meal, too. That's positive, but if you pause rather than just shoveling it in, if you're pausing and saying like, "What do I feel when I bite into this?" Stuffed cabbage, you know, who does it remind me of? Does that help? Yeah, it does help because it brings
16: back loving, wonderful memories. And the dish that you use as an example is a great, healthy dish. We have to consider sort of the physiological and emotional, psychological aspects of food. But I really worry for America because the amount of ultra-processed, highly refined foods in the market is so huge, and it's easy to get addicted to it. Um, So we have to be very mindful when we yearn for those. And if you're really longing for potato chips, eat it, but make sure you just take a handful and put it in a nice dish and eat it mindfully to be able to taste the saltiness, this crispiness, and thank the universe for the right climate to be able to have that potato and the manpower that has been engaged in making it available, not only at the factory, okay, but also transportation to get the chips to the supermarket, et cetera. Mindful eating really allows us to become much more aware of what we have, how we
17: get it, and what it takes to be able to have that. The point you make about taking the potato chips and putting them in a bowl, it gets at another tip for how to eat at a healthy pace, which is take smaller portions to the table, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. If you have a whole bag of chips with you
16: and start eating, it's really challenging and difficult to stop after six or eight chips. Because, you know, we love the taste, we love the crispiness, and we just keep getting it from the back. And especially when you may be looking at your cell phone or watching a TV program, you're distracted and you feel good about the crispiness and the taste, and you just want more and more without consciously thinking about stopping.
17: Yeah, I wonder, is there a space for saying affirmations even in your head, you know, like, I'm not in a rush, you know, or I, I enjoy my food or something really simple to keep yourself on track? Oh, yes. I think the key with
16: a hurried life when you start to eat is literally stop and take a few breaths in and out. Look at what you're eating and tell yourself, I'm going to enjoy this. And the food will nourish me, both my body and my mind. hmm
17: And is there a particular way we should try to eat? Like any technique that you could tell us that will help us eat slower?
16: I think chewing is important. We don't chew enough. And we just swallow the food. So chewing our teeth is supposed to help us to break up the food so that it's easier for absorption. You know, it helps in many different ways. Digestion and appreciation of food. And it really helps to get you to know more about your own relationship with food. So look at your food know what you're eating. Take a bite and chew, chew, chew. <laughs> that was
3: Lillian Chung, a mindful eating researcher, speaking with LifeKit host Marielle Seguera. Life LifeKit wants to help you make and keep your New Year's resolution. Check out Life Kit's resolution planner. You can choose areas of life you'd like to focus on, and the tool will guide you to some of LifeKit's best tips on the topic. You can find it at npr.org slash new year.
7: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is WBUR. New England Patriots coach Bill Belichick today would not address rumors that this might be his last season in New England. The Pats play their final game of the season Sunday in Foxborough against the Jets. At his regular Friday news conference, Belichick said today uh, that he uh, would not say his future, but he briefly did reflect on his more than two decades as Pats head coach.
20: I've always appreciated the opportunity and... uh, yeah you know, just looking forward to you know tomorrow's game or Sunday's game against the Jets and you know, like I said trying to put our best game out there this year
0: the patriots have not had a deep playoff run since they won their last super bowl that was in 2019 it's 630
18: wbur supporters include direct tire and auto service a dealer alternative Your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities.
8: DirectTire.com. WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com.